Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. From the halls of assembly, you'll hear a scream and shout. I love of Indiana, his manic and devout. Everything I do, we discuss in unique manner. We won't be satisfied until we hang another banner. Us two goofy guys go by names of Ward and Eric. And as you probably know by now, we're Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Happy belated 4th of July, Ward. How are you? I'm well, sir. I'm glad to see that you're still sporting your American spirit with that very, very red beard. But look at the bottom. Look at the bottom. It's starting to fade. I don't know if you can see it. I can. It's the, the red starting to go away. If you can't tell by this yellow at the bottom, you could by looking at my pillow, which <laughs> looks like a murder scene. I mean, it looks like evidence in a CSI episode. That's what it looks like. Just red splotches everywhere. When I take a shower, it looks like the final scene from Carrie. That's what it looks like. Still not, because you said the first shower took a half hour and it just never stopped, but that's just ongoing. Yeah, I mean, like, it's not as bad as it was in the first couple, but yeah, it, um, and I'm not going to lie to you, it has definitely affected how many showers I've taken since we've done it. (laughs) I'm guessing none. No, 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 it's, it's greater than none. It's greater than none. I meant none after that initial one you were telling me about. I don't want to, let's not get into specifics. Who can remember? Um, But look, the next stage is shaving it. And so I'm getting sentimental about it. And uh, it's a hard decision to make. So clearly the listeners, the Twitter followers can expect some sort of boys to men, end of the road montage video of you and your beard throughout the last year and a half. There's going to be something. There, there will be something for sure. Yes. I don't want to overpromise here. And, and we, we know the world is waiting. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I am. And I did want to suggest that on air to put the pressure on you to over deliver. Oh, boy. Well, yeah, unfortunately, I don't edit this podcast, too. So that's staying in. <laughs> uh, look, man, besides being July 4th weekend, a pretty big weekend for IU football recruiting. Oh, it just keeps rolling. I do want to get back to 4th of July, but we're going to do that later because that's going to take a minute. Okay. Uh, But I'm good with talking about football. We got another cornerback coming in. Unbelievable, man. I mean, 
look, I know some people will look at it and go, oh, he's a three-star, you know, what's, what's to get so excited about? But the truth is, when you look at the schools that he's picking from, like that's what I always looked at with Indiana recruits for football. Who are we beating? And it used to be like we would lose to Eastern Michigan and Central Kentucky and Ball State. Lost another now, one to William and Mary. Yes, exactly. And now we're beating out Wisconsin and Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, look, and I know Nebraska's not the Nebraska of old, but they're still in on some big guys. Wisconsin clearly a power in the Big Ten and has been for a long time. So, and this guy had his pick. We lost one. We lost another one. Jacoby Spells went to uh, West Virginia over the weekend. But Mons seems to be a guy that that everybody who follows this stuff, including Weaver, is really excited about. Well, and you got to look at that historical perspective of like a three-star would have been just such a a, a phenomenon in the program and that now we're just stacking three stars and we got a four-star in there that it's really a whole new way of looking at that. And yes, as soon as we get to the level where we're complaining about three stars, we're going to be really happy. But at this point, it's like, okay, this, I think clearly this is going to be one of, if not the very best recruiting class, the Indiana Hoosiers have had in the modern era. For for sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess it's hard to compare it to back in the sixties and stuff to your point. Yeah. But I don't think there's any question that this is going to be hands down the best since they started tracking this kind of stuff. And that's exciting as hell. Yeah. Because you see what Tom Allen has done with lesser talent. Now he's getting greater talent and we get a watch. It's fantastic. Totally. What did you want to talk about with July 4th? Well, as everybody knows, everybody was talking about, it was the 25th anniversary of the great 4th of July movie, really the only great 4th of July movie, Independence Day. And I think it's our duty as as those who inform the public, speak with the public about matters of crucial importance, UFOs, baby, it's on. It is on. I just, I need people to talk to about it. My dad won't watch this documentary on Netflix. I told him to watch the phenomenon. I think I told you to watch it. You haven't watched it yet, have you? I can't get there, man. I can't get there. I listen. Listen. I, I listened to Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's oh. smarter. Yeah, and yet somehow we can't stop talking about him. It's almost like he's he's trying to shore up his argument against them. But I, I mean, we've got. Well, he is asked about them all the time. Okay, fair enough. But the point being, this is like now our own government, after denying anything could be possible since 1947, are like, yeah. There's some stuff. We've got some footage from the military, from Air Force pilots who are allowing to talk about it that we're like, oh, we don't, we cannot explain this stuff. Whoa. I mean, talk about not being able to explain some stuff. Why all of a sudden in the middle of our interview or our conversation here, did your Hoosier Hysterics background disappear? It said somebody had signed me out from my account whoa right you want to tell me they're not listening they are listening weird (laughs) the government doesn't want us talking about this you hit you flew a little too close to the sun icarus (laughs) is icarus the right reference that 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 is correct that is correct good his his father came up with the wings and he got cocky with it but look wait are we not recording anymore or what's going on it says i'm still recording 
your background, the, the funny thing is you went from a green, a, a virtual background to a background that looks like a virtual background of a garage space. Yeah, well, look, there, there we have the same logo. It just doesn't have the adjusted facial hair. Yeah. So I'll, I'll just roll with this because I'm not going to stop talking about aliens for a second. Oh, I thought that was going to get us off. No, of look, look, I've got to make this point. This is like in the first time in the history of this country or the world that the government's like, we can't explain this stuff. They, they go through these tiers, right? They have, well, this could be natural phenomenon. This could be um, just air clutter. It could be trash. It could be whatever. And then they get to this final fifth category and they say, we, were, we cannot figure out what this is. We need to wait for science to advance mankind's knowledge of science and physics to advance yeah before... to tell us that it was a chinese satellite yeah oh yeah yeah you think so you think so that that's that's a man who has done nothing but deny my request to watch a documentary called the phenomenon it's netflix yeah, watch yeah. it and see if sure. you're still a hater watch it oh. this is for the listeners too. Yeah, the yeah. phenomenon on netflix watch it see if you're a hater they just congress just released a report they said yeah, we can't explain this shit. Yeah, they said it was unidentified, Ward. That's all they said. What do you think UFO stands for, Eric? No, right. Unidentified does not mean alien. It means You're unidentified. Correct. It mm -hmm. could absolutely be a Russian or Chinese. No, 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 no. This is stuff. No, they, you're going to tell me be. the U.S. government. No, you, you telling me the U.S. government, the Pentagon will admit that the Russians and Chinese have gotten so advanced in their technology, we won't even be able to wrap our brains around no. it? No, they didn't admit that. They don't know. Hence, unidentified. No. Not no. alien no. flying this is, object. This is you not knowing anything about anything and wanting you to You don't know it. either. You don't know that I it's know alien. I know a lot more about this than you just because be I watched that documentary. Because you incredible. watched a documentary by watched a guy who wants to prove that there's aliens out there. I have no stake in this game. I didn't put any money no, but in But he Vegas. does. But who? he does. The guy who who did that oh, that's documentary. Right. And it's just him sitting there talking to the camera the whole time. No, oh, wait, no, he talks you to know. a ton of other people. Oh, yeah. And the New York Times and Congress and Pentagon. No, the Congress they're, has they're not all said. got an agenda. They no. all want no. us to think the there's Congress aliens. has not said it's aliens. Stop no. it. Why did they spend five years looking into this? They, they well, wanted to see. And then well, after looking at it for five years, they, they go, can't we say still that. don't know. Exactly. And that's not, why that's you, not been their why approach. Does, why does night? we don't know for you jump to it must be aliens? I'm not saying it must be aliens, but oh, what, what are I'm you saying, saying there is a watershed moment. There are UFOs up to this point from like Roswell till now. They've always said, oh, it's a weather balloon. Oh, it's a, it's a ball of lightning. They've always come up with some excuse or some reason. And they have admitted since then, well, some of that stuff we we didn't deny what it was that we wanted people to speculate that it was aliens because that would actually distract from them learning about our advanced technology but now they're just kind of coming out and being like uh, you know okay here's 144 items that we've investigated and we cannot we it, these could maybe be this these could maybe be this including other advanced technology from other countries that's one of the categories but then they get to these 18 where they're like we have no idea what this is and we can't even speculate what this is so then you combine it with oh say 
professional fighter pilots who are going crazy because they're seeing stuff flying around them that they have never seen before. Or professional fighter pilots who went crazy and then saw that's, stuff flying around that's them. That's right. They all went crazy. They all went crazy. So not all. Just oh, some. no, no. All of them. All of them. Well, that, that's how you explain it. Well, no, what no. About the same one? What about them. the same one? If you didn't say they all went crazy, right. then what did the same one see? The same one saw something that <gasps> is unidentified. Yeah. And it has more of a chance of being from this world what would it than be it does then? from an alien if world. It doesn't fit into the other four categories. What is it? Well, they don't know it doesn't fit into the other four categories, Ward. They don't know. You, they came up with four other categories. Yes, arbitrarily, they no. came up with four categories. To say it could be, well, Eric's going to be real, skept real skeptical and thinks that it could be from Russia or China. That's a whole category you, you unto just, itself. You want to believe so badly, man. You want to believe so why badly. Why wouldn't you want to believe? Because I don't give a shit. It doesn't really? affect, because it doesn't affect whether or not Indiana's going to get Kyle Filipowski. That's why. It doesn't affect why. We're going to go to the Sweet 16. If, it does not if affect. If I could prove that it could help us get Kyle <laughs> Filipowski, would it get you to if watch we, that documentary? If Indiana could be the first school to recruit an alien to play in the Candy Stripes, and that alien moved in ways that other teams have never seen, I'm all for it. Nobody's explained Tijon Job. <laughs> <laughs> That's your best argument so far. <laughs> That is by far the best argument so anyway, far. Anyway, I'm taking it to the people. I want to hear what they think. Do they care? If if they do, which side of the argument do they come down on? Me, I'm a healthy skeptic. I'll believe it when I see it. I'd like to see it. But when when But you, it sounds like you do believe it. I want to believe it. And I think now, now the government, the one that's been working hard for like 70 years to say no, nothing to see here is like hey, there's something to see here. And now it's more of a, hey, instead of if you're on your, your aircraft carrier and you guys see a bunch of crazy shit, we don't want to know about it. Now they're opening it up. They're like, look, we got to figure this stuff out. They want to know. They want to know. I don't want to believe it. Why not? Because if there is a being out there that can come to earth, mm -hmm. they're going to eat us. Yeah. They're see, going to eat all of us, they're going to farm us. We're going to be their <laughs> slaves. They're going to destroy everything. And we're we are going to be like ants to them. So I don't want to believe them. Why, they're here. Wouldn't they, why wouldn't they have done that already? Maybe they're just, well, exactly, because they haven't been here yet. <laughs> or maybe or what? super advanced and they look at us as a bunch of heathens and they're kind of curious about it. Oh, and by the way, they started showing up right after we bombed each other with some nuclear weapons. Uh, mm, maybe go. that got their attention. Again. And like, what are these assholes doing? Again, we are food with eyes. That's what we are to them. And I don't want to believe that they're out there. I want to believe that we're all that there is and that Indiana basketball is all that really matters and football and the rest of the sports. That's where I'm focused. I can't start thinking about aliens, man. I love Independence Day, by the way. I love an alien movie. Let me let me let me back up. An alien movie, an invasion movie. I just watched The Tomorrow War on Amazon. Like the second it became available, I watched it. Did you watch it? Why would I watch that? I will. It's awesome. Yeah, it's not as good as the phenomenon.
Okay. You then I don't, I don't even know how to compare the two, but well, one's based on real life with real aliens and real extraterrestrials, and the other one has Chris Pratt trying too hard. But you liked Independence Day. Yeah, well, that's the greatest Fourth of July movie of all time, and one of yes. the greatest alien movies of all time. I agree, but why you are hating on Chris Pratt, who's really fun and good Sometimes. in almost everything he does? Not the Jurassic franchise. Oh, I thought he, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, he's 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 a lot of fun in that. Parks love and them. Recreation. Love him in Parks and Rec. I mean, I don't know why you're hating on the dude. The well, because you're hating on my thing. I'm going to hate on your thing nine times out of ten. <laughs> Here's what's cool about the Tomorrow War, if I can. It's all made up. I don't believe any of it. I don't care. Well, yes, Ward, you shouldn't believe the Tomorrow War. We it's agree. Not, it's we not agree. real. I agree. I agree. <laughs> the Tomorrow War is not real. Mm -hmm. But here is what is cool about the movie. Because the thing that annoys me about all alien movies, they all, because it's hard to show an alien, they all do their best to obscure seeing the alien, right? Sure. It's really dark, they're in shadows, the except, lights are flickering on and off. Except E.T., and sometimes they probably should have hit E.T. Yeah, fair enough, E.T., but, but I think we can draw a distinction between E.T. and the alien invasion movies that you and I are speaking of here in the Independence Day Ill. The cool thing about this one is they do not hide it. They are fighting in broad daylight. Okay. Like, and okay. it feels like they did it on purpose. And the aliens are white. Like, they are clear. You see them. They, you know, the buildup is good. And then when you see them, they're like, there is no hiding of them, which I thought was very cool because I'm sick and tired of movies that obscure and try to pretend like, oh, we're being real artsy here and scary. No, you're just trying to cover up the fact that you don't have good special effects to show us an alien. Well, you know, yes, that definitely happens. But also, I think, speaking of great Fourth of July movies, Jaws, one of the all-time greats, there, the, the, the shark kept breaking down. So they couldn't show the shark as much right. as they wanted to. But then everybody was like, that was genius. They just showed the shark a little bit yes. for a long time to build up the whole, the great reveal. So I think a lot of times, because the Tomorrow War, clearly had plenty of money and so do some of these others but you can tell when they're doing it to hide up their lack of a budget and visual effects or if it's trying to build the suspense and anticipation yes but i would argue with jaws it was one shark in a vast ocean right. so like it made sense to not like here in tomorrow War, it's millions of aliens they're everywhere so you gotta show them they're they're more populous than the people and we see the people all over the place in crystal clear, you know, accuracy and definition. So anyway, I what really, the hell are we talking about? I really want to see Tomorrow Ward. I didn't realize it involved aliens, and now I'm totally <laughs> going to watch it. I would think you would love it. The, I think the concept of it is great. Do you know the concept? It takes place tomorrow. <laughs> and a war. <laughs> There's a war. No, they, don't they have to go into the future to fight this war to save today kind of thing? Yeah, but the future comes back. So 30 years from now, people show up, well, people show up today that are from 30 years ago from now, and they say, hey, listen, guys, we're losing this war with aliens, and we don't have enough manpower, so we need to take people from the present to help us. That's okay. a good premise. Yeah, That's I like that. Premise. It's Terminator-esque, but I like yeah. that. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm in. I'm in. I mean, look, look, let me back up. Independence Day is much better. Well, I mean, much it's, better. it's the gold standard of alien invasion movies. Could not agree more. I love that movie and we'll watch it 
every year. I love that movie. And Will Smith is so good and Jeff Goldblum, like you can't beat them. Judd Hirsch. You, you know, know what I learned? I learned yesterday that remember after the 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 dogfight in the desert where Will Smith takes down the alien ship and then yeah, when he kicks the the alien's corpse, well we think it's the corpse, he actually broke his toe. Is that true? That is. And you know what? You couldn't see it on his face. He just, like a warrior, (laughs) just kept moving forward. Uh, Love that movie. Okay. So listen, now let's get back to Indiana basketball a little bit. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, that's the natural segue. Yeah, sure. Uh, Not a lot of recruiting news to to really talk about. Jalen Hood Shafino had his official visit. There really hasn't been a big interview with him. The word is that his mom, who is very important in this recruitment, loved Indiana, really connected with the staff, loved the campus. You know, Rabbi keeps telling us that he believes that Kansas is going to matter in the end if Kansas decides to make a play. Right. Uh, the, the thing that gets in the way there is does Kansas over recruit him? You know, do they find somebody that they think is better at his position or that he thinks is competing for his position? I don't know. He is of the guys that are left kind of the big fish that Indiana is in on because Filipowski seems like it is a long shot at best. Jalen Washington is even a longer shot at best. It seems from all reports, we lost out on Taylor. Um, there's guys like Rodney Rice that we just never got, got our, our hooks in who announced, I think a top five that we were not part of. So Jalen Hood is a big deal. And then I do think it's going to be the transfer portal again. I, I think that that's where Woody is going to look for, for 2022. And if there is a late, recruitment to get in on like Tamar Bates was, you know, a coaching change that happens, something like that, a decommitment for whatever reason, or a really late bloomer, you know, who knows, like something Who's, could happen. We just, like, we just offered a big boy, like a 610, 6'11 guy. Um, is that for 23? I think no, that there was- is one for 22 that we offered. You're right. And I can't remember his name. Um, but it does seem like, okay, if, and, and we know we, we can't take a step back in 2022 uh, with the, what we all think will be the relatively short tenure of Woody successful or not, but it, it does seem like we're getting in early. We're getting in deep with a lot of 23s. Like I, I don't remember this many scholarship offers in like a two month span going out. Maybe, maybe before I was watching it closely. Yeah. Cream um, did. Cream yeah. would do it. I mean, cream threw them out pretty far and wide. I think we all have a little bit more. Well, we all want to have a little bit more faith that they're not just being thrown out willy nilly the way they were, you know, uh, earlier, but, but who knows, maybe we were wrong about that too. I mean, you know, part of today's podcast is revisiting some things that maybe we have misjudged, getting a little bit more of a, a context for things. Well, we know there was a four-year dry spell of getting studs from out of state um, that I don't That's think true. was a coincidence. So, and as is very well documented, besides Xavier Booker or Xavier Booker, do we know for sure if it's with the X or not? Xavier? I think it's Xavier. Okay. Um, you know, we know that there's not a lot of big fish in the state of Indiana. So we've got to be looking beyond our borders and, and hopefully this staff, you know, obviously Tamar Bates being a great example of it, of how we can get guys from elsewhere to come on in. And, you know, the transfers, obviously that worked for us this year too, but I think we'd all like to get that, that mix of landing 
the big Hoosiers when they come around, but knowing we can always grab somebody from the South or from the East or somewhere else in the Midwest. If they, we have a dry class, like apparently we have at least a couple of coming up. Yeah. And compound it with the fact that we're not going to get Jalen Washington, who's really the only guy that, that is an impact player from the class of 22, at least that's what the people that follow it say. So you don't want to go two years in a row with losing the best player in the state. You just don't like that, that, you know, you and I have gone back and forth and round and round on how important it is to recruit in state. It, It does seem like the balance is important. And you just, when there is the big impact player, you can't miss on them regularly and expect to have a lot of success at Indiana because no matter what, And this is the thing that's really hard for you and I to understand. I think really hard. It is difficult to get kids who did not grow up loving Indiana to live in Bloomington for several years. That, that, that in the end is difficult kids from the East coast, like just getting them to live in Bloomington is a pitch. It is an obstacle to get over, which is why things like evolve apartments are so important, which is why things like NIL are going to be so important. Why official visits are so important because once they get there and they see the ladies at evolve apartments, they walk around the campus, they see the facilities, like what 18 year old, 17 year old kid wouldn't be like, man, this is like, this is the Brigadoon thing. This is this heavenly place. I can go live for a few years. I hope you're right, but like, have you spent any time in Columbus, Ohio? God, no, just a few days and that was more than enough. All right, so look, you and I hate it, but Columbus, Ohio is a city. It's not a major city, it is. I mean, it's got more restaurants, it's got more, it's got more nightlife. Than, it, than Bloomington does. It just does. There's more yeah, people. Yeah, I, I'd like if you wanted to sell me on like UCLA being in the middle of No, LA. but I'm not even talking, we're not competing with UCLA, but we are competing with Lexington and we are competing with Columbus and, and those are bigger cities. And I don't know if it matters or not, but look, something has mattered because it's been difficult for us to get out of state kids. I have never heard of a recruit saying, boy, you know, it was really like, mm, you know, neck and neck with IU and Ohio state, but that Columbus nightlife is what really won me over. I don't think it's that <laughs> one thing, but I think that it's foodie that culture in Lexington. <laughs> look, I spent a little time in Lexington. Don't and, say uh, it. It's awful. Okay, it's awful. Good, good. I Who- hate it. I got to say, Louisville's not bad. Louisville has something, but look, most people would say Lexington isn't bad either, but I hate it because I can feel the Kentucky all around it. It's the Um, NIL is about a week old, you know, a little less than a week. What's your take so far on what you've seen on social media? We've gotten some guys who have um, already done some deals. Christian Lander did a deal with a video game company where you can pay to play video games with him. Uh, Parker Stewart did a endorsement of a drink delivery service i believe you can get snapple in 25 minutes or less <laughs> again i mentioned it on reasonable rabbi i did not know that there was a crisis of speedy delivery of snapple in the in the country but but what's your take so far uh, i have not been monitoring the situation on the ground i have not been scrolling through you know the tweets and what people's responses are i really think we're months if not longer away from seeing how this really affects a program or, or even like a team, because, you know, a lot of the stuff we brought up on Rabbi was, you know, jealousy, distraction, 
that kind of stuff. It's the middle of the summer. We've got some some piddly dink stuff happening now. I, I, whatever. That's kind of what I expected. Uh, but it's more like, do we hear reports in December or January that people are upset because somebody's making a bunch of money and they're not? Or is a coach upset with a player because he's too distracted or not? I, I think it's, it's too early to change my opinion of um, – it should be a good thing for IU overall compared to other schools. And it seems what Scott Dolson has set up as an infrastructure should, should allow for that. But I, I don't know. I don't know. Well, look, I do think that the only way it's going to be good for IU is if two things happen. One is the clear one, which is businesses that care about Indiana sports have to pony up. They have to learn about how to access this platform. They have to learn how to structure deals with kids that, that are valuable to the kid and valuable to them as a business. And they got to get on it and they got to get on it quick. And, uh, and I think that's a big deal. And, you know, there's very, there are rules. Well, it's very weird. There are no rules right now in states that haven't passed laws. You know, the state of Indiana has not passed an NIL law. So it is up to the university to just decide what the rules are. So our university has decided that the university cannot be involved in directly hooking a business up with a kid. What is interesting to me is because there's no rules right now, why are they not allowed to? Like, I, I don't know who is governing that to sit because the NCAA has basically said amateurism is, is gone for the, until further notice. And kids can, can, you know, capitalize and monetize their name, image, and likeness. I don't know where this thought is that the school can't hook somebody up with a business. I know that that was what was thought was going to be part of the rules, but who's making that rule right now? I'd actually be curious if anybody knows to let us know if that's a real rule. But anyway, uh, so businesses I have, to, have to take the baton here and they have to pony up. That's big. And the other thing that has to happen is the kids who want to take advantage of it have to get their followerships up. They have to produce content that is valuable to consumers so that we follow them. And you and I have talked about this before. If you listen to this podcast, want to help Indiana in this NIL world, follow Indiana athletes on social media. Simply click follow on your Twitter accounts and Instagram accounts and follow them. I mean, that... That makes them more valuable to the businesses, which in turn give them money, which in turn will allow Indiana to say to future recruits, look at what X player did last year. That's what we were able to do at Indiana. We were able to raise your profile to make you more valuable. And in turn, that earned you X number of dollars. That's what we can all do as people who you know, don't necessarily have a business that can give them money. I did see something that gave me pause. Michael Penix on one of these services asking for $500 an autograph. Okay. I'm totally fine with him doing that. But as a kid who went down to IU football and especially basketball games and got autographs afterwards, does that mean he's not going to sign some kid's autograph when he's leaving Memorial stadium? I really hope not because that would be very sad for a lot of people. That's a good point, Ward. I don't know. I mean, I think that's obviously something that each individual person is going to have to decide. I agree. Look, I've always thought that the autograph signing business is a weird one 
Like part of getting an autograph is the fun of like staying in line, knowing what exit to go to where the players come out, you know, having the balls to go up to somebody in an airport, you know, like that is part of it. I've never really bought the literally or figuratively the, the purchasing of an autograph that, that just seems to take, take things away a little bit, but yeah, I don't, I don't know how that's going to go. I've only purchased one autograph and it was actually three autographs, but it was from my father and all three autographs were of people who were dead. (laughs) Makes sense. (laughs) You were not going to be able to get those autographs. No, it was in Vegas in one of these memorabilia shops and it was a, a high society poster, you know, Cole Porter movie signed by Frank Sinatra, Bing Crosby and Grace Kelly. Right. Also known as the guy who works the counter at the memorabilia store (laughs) (laughs) with a Sharpie. You're such a cynic. You're such a skeptic. (laughs) No, no, no. But that's what always scared me about those things. Like for me, getting an autograph only is meaningful if you got the autograph. Now I get it in that case that you're talking about, Ward, but like, I don't get like, like if somebody handed me something and said, Hey, I met X and they signed this for you. Awesome. Right, like but, my Victor like, Oladipo ball. Yes, but like I bought this from person blah, blah, blah. Like no. it just, I, I agree with you. That, I, I hope not. Now, the other thing that's interesting, and I explored the Open Doors platform, it lays out various things that are kind of pre-prescribed um, for what you can buy. A tweet, an Instagram post, a Snapchat, a video. And one of them is an autograph session. So for example, would a car dealership be able to strike a deal with trace that says, here's X number of dollars come to community cars from two o'clock to five o'clock on Saturday, the 15th and sign autographs for whoever shows up. Great. Like everybody cool. wins. Yeah. Cause then you're not making the person give you money like a hua paying for a service. <laughs> right. I mean, like, that's what it feels like. That's what it feels like. So I, don't you think we've tortured these people long enough? Like this interview today is incredible. We've got to get to it. I have to say one more thing though. Okay. All right. Cause this is our first podcast. I know we did reasonable rabbi. It's the first podcast since getting boat raced in the trustee election. Oh yeah. We should talk about that. So we don't have to talk long. I just want to say this because the people listening to this podcast have have, have been forced to listen to us and me specifically blather on about this for months and months. This will be the final time. Uh, I just want to say thank you. Uh, you know, it's been about a week now, a little less than a week that I've been sitting with the loss and also sitting with the um, humbling experience of knowing that almost 4,000 people took the time to vote for me. And that means a tremendous amount. I do feel a great sense of disappointment that I let you down that you voted for me and I was not able to amass enough votes to make your vote really matter. Uh, and, and I feel honestly like that's, I don't mind losing. Like I've never been afraid to fail at anything. God knows we started this podcast um, and, and we continue <laughs> to do it and fail all the time. But so, so losing isn't the thing, but like usually when I win or lose at something, it's like on, it's just me. You know what I mean? Ward? Right, like right. try to sell a TV show that's on me, you know? And I can handle that. Like I either succeed or I don't. But when you have like 4,000 people who were part of your team and that's what it felt like from the beginning on this, that's what this podcast has felt like, that it's we're part of a community that I feel that weight. And I, um, 
The only thing I can say is just thank you. And any energy that we spent on the trustee campaign, we are refocusing right back into the podcast. And that starts with today. That's right. Today, today was one we've talked about, obviously, for a long, long time. Uh, It looked over the last few weeks like it might come together. But until you actually gave me a time and a place that this was going to happen, uh, I I was like, well, I'll I'll believe it when I'm, I'm talking to this guy. One, one side note, I would like to, the, the loss of the election, that hit me as I was setting up to get in, get this interview cut up, because we've already obviously talked to this gentleman, and I was getting ready to edit it before we did this intro, and, you know, for the last few months, I've been taking the the trusty song, the, uh, the images, and those go into the show, and I'm like, I won't need to use those for like two years, and that made me sad. <laughs> no, 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 no. By the way, it would only be a year. I mean, there's an election in a year. Oh, is it once a year? It's every year. Oh, well, then we're starting the, like 2022 right now. No, 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 no. You can put those in the trash bin. Um, but it, it was it was a blast. It was so fun to have the crowd participation, if you will, all along the way. And I think the best way to to move on is by talking to this gentleman, because as sad as I was not bringing those elements into the editing software, I was bringing this gentleman's interview into the software. And I'm like, holy shit, not only the excitement of of who he is and what he did for Indiana University, but how great I think this conversation was. I want to say this before we get to it, because I put out a tweet on Friday because I was so excited. I usually don't put it out until the day before, but you know, you and I talked, I'm like, I'm so excited. Let's just get it out. And 98, 99% of the responses have been positive. But there were a couple like, shove it up your ass, like to to us. Like, why do we care about this? Just move on already. Well, here's what I want to say to those people. I want to say a couple things. (laughs) Number one, this gentleman was a major part of Indiana basketball period. He is a major part, almost a decade, a very difficult decade, coming out of the worst time ever. So he has a very important place in the history of Indiana University basketball. And that's what we do here. We talk to people who are part of Indiana University basketball. So that, but the second is, if you question whether people care or not, the tweet that I sent out saying, this is who we have coming up, got more likes and impressions than any tweet we have sent about any interview we have done, period. Not close. Even when we had Archie, when we interviewed Archie, who was the head coach at the time, who at that time, there was still a lot of positivity around it and seemed like maybe we were going to turn the corner and Archie wasn't doing interviews. We were like the first interview we had done in a long time. That tweet didn't get as much reaction from the fan base as this one. So the bottom line is, Hoosier fans still care. Now, maybe they want answers to some questions they had, but so many of them were just like, thank you. We owe this guy something, even when we didn't realize we owed him. And it's been a while now. And we went through four years of crap and we realized how hard it is. So let's just take a moment to say thank you for what he did do good for the program. And, and so I just wanted to, to get that out there. Yeah, this, this guy, his teams, the, the years, 
there's a couple of them that will be hanging in assembly hall as long as there's an assembly hall. And if there ends up being a new building, those teams in those years that he coached will move to the new building. And it's just a thrill to get to talk to him about, you know, I think it's like most relationships. It's well, let's, let's say some relationships, but certainly one that lasts nine years. There's just so many good times. There's so much good stuff to talk about. And it's, it's really fun that as, as the bad breakup, fades into the background to really get to focus on the good times we had. And boy, this was all that and more. Just a reminder, this is, uh, as it turned out to be, just part one. We will be doing a part two because this only gets us through about 60% of his run at Indiana. And uh, we will do part two, hopefully sooner rather than later. I mean, I think we're still hoping for this summer. And it's important to know that both part one and part two are... Powered by Let's get to this interview, part one. Just, again, thank you to this gentleman for coming on our show. Here comes our guest. Here comes our guest. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of the Hoosier Hysterics. And uh, boy, we have special guests, but then we have very, 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 very special guests. Today's one of those. Eric, let the folks know who we have with us on this fine occasion. I got to say, I can't believe I even get to do this intro, but here we go. Hailing from Mount Pleasant, Michigan, and maybe one of my favorite things that I've read about any of our guests, he went to Central Michigan, where he got a degree in parks and recreation, which I love. I love that. He then started his coaching career as a grad assistant at Michigan State, assistant coach at Western Kentucky, where all they did was win the Sun Belt Tournament, won the Sun Belt Regular Season Championship, moved on to become an assistant coach at Pittsburgh, uh, then matriculated his way over to Michigan State, back to Michigan State from 95 to 99. Two Big Ten championships came with him. And then he got his head coaching break where he went to Marquette to rebuild a storied program. He was there from 99 to 2008. He went to five NCAA tournaments, three NIT appearances, a regular season title for Conference USA, and of course, a Final Four with Dwayne Wade in 2002-2003, two-time Conference Coach of the Year, National Coach of the Year, and then he made the best decision of his life to come to Indiana University from 2008 to 2017. He went to three Sweet 16s. He was the number one ranked team in the country, the number one seed in the NCAA tournament, two outright Big Ten titles, the first outright Big Ten championship in 20 years. By the way, read this, in his time from year four through the end, led all Power Five teams in field goal percentage and three-point percentage in the country. I mean, that's crazy, especially considering what we've watched the last several years at Indiana. <laughs> Big Ten Coach of the Year in 2016, and the list of players that he has helped develop and get to the NBA is remarkable. Anthony Edwards, number one pick of the draft. Dwayne Wade, number five pick of the draft. Victor Oladipo, number two. 
Cody Zeller, number four, Noah Vonley, number nine. And the list goes on. Thomas Bryant, Yogi Ferrell, Wesley Matthews, OG Ananobi, Travis Diener. It just goes on and on. 21 seasons total as a head coach, a record of 397 and 280. In 2001, chosen by Team USA Basketball as one of eight coaches. 2004 assistant for Team USA under 20 team where they won the FIBA title. He, of course, is married into one of the great sports families of all time. He has three kids, Megan, Riley, and my personal favorite, Ainsley, which shares the same name as my kid. And no, I did not name my kid because Tom named his daughter Ainsley. That's not why I did it. But serendipity rules. Ladies and gentlemen, we are talking to the most successful Indiana coach of the millennium. We are talking to Tom Crean. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you very much. We named Ainsley, uh, my wife saw that name, Ainsley Hayes from the West Wing. That's what we did. There you go. There, there, there wasn't a lot of Ainsleys. <laughs> no, that's exactly what we did. We loved that show. And my wife and I loved that name. And that's what we did. That's exactly what my wife came up with it. I watched the show. I wasn't as in tune with it as her, but she said it. She was, she, her heart was set on it. Uh, I was great with it. And that's exactly who she's been for 16 years. She's been Ainsley. That's How amazing. old is yours? How old is your Ainsley? Uh, she is nine. She's nine. nine. All right. Yeah. You got a lot to look forward Wait, to. Wait, she's turning nine. She's eight right now. Wait, I got, I got, I got three. You know, you got three. It's hard to keep it all straight. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. All right. Before we get to anything, I just got to start with this. Why the hell are you talking to us? Well, because my son, <laughs> my son's a fan of what you do. And I, and I follow, he's, I, I follow him. Uh, I know you guys love Indiana. Um, I know you've had a lot of guys or people on that, that, that I've crossed paths with, uh, over my time there. And, um, uh, I have affection for that. I mean, when you, when you go to Indiana, you know, that you're walking into something that has got just an incredibly different level of passion. And, uh, I think you two guys really bring that to life. And I think that's awesome. Wow. Well, Thank we you. could not be more excited to have you here. Um, it is something where getting into this, it was just going to be the two of us yelling at each other in a garage about all things Indiana basketball. We had no idea it was going to lead to a conversation like this, but it is, it is thrilling. And, you know, what we've really found is we've seen these people as, as players and as coaches, but when you give us the opportunity to have a real conversation like this, that us and those who listen get to know you as people. So we're just really excited to get a chance to, to know you as a human being and what's going on in your life now, which what's going on, you know, across the country, it's sheer madness as of yesterday. What's going on with NIL and your life and your world? How are you dealing with it? What are your feelings on it? Well, it, it's, uh, you know, we talk a lot in, in, in sports and business, you know, whatever it is. I mean, things are fluid. Things are moving targets. This is beyond that. I mean, there's just, there's, because there was a lot of anticipation of it coming. And I think the schools like our school, the leagues, they did a really good job of trying to formulate plans without a lot of maybe tremendous guidance from the NCAA. And, and when you're still trying to decipher how something, something's going to go when you're less than two days away from the launch of it, that's hard. It's really hard. And, and I don't think anybody truly knows. I think the bottom line is that it's really good that these kids, young, I shouldn't say kids, that these young people can, 
can make money. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that whatsoever. Um, I think the one thing that, that really makes a lot of sense, it's name, image, and likeness, is to really make sure that they're putting a lot of emphasis on image. Because what they do right now, is, as most people have seen from what happens in social media, what happens in this world that we're in, what you do right now, it doesn't go away. I mean, it carries. And, and uh, I think people that are really, really concerned about that, that, that are concerned about being real, but that are also concerned about understanding that whatever they do now is going to pave the way for their future, good, bad, or indifferent. And uh, I do think some of the, the uh, maybe unintended consequences we'll find will be good consequences. I think it's going to help people be smarter, younger people be smarter on social media. I think it's going to help them be smarter and more diligent of what they post, what mm -hmm. they show, you know, whether it's Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, all the different things that are out there, TikTok. You've got to be smart because as I try to get across to our players that people are going to invest in people that they feel something from, but that they feel that they can sell as well. They're not just, mm -hmm. there's always going to be places they're just going to give money. I mean, there's always, there's always going to be cheating. I mean, there's just, there just is. And when I took this job at, at Georgia in, in set, well, I guess 18, I never thought that we'd be in the middle of 2021 with an FBI scandal that started in September of 2017. And we'd still be sitting here with so many schools, including those that are in our league, that nothing has really happened yet, right? Like, so I wouldn't have thought that. I would have thought there would have been more things that would have would come about. So you're going to deal with things constantly that you, you, you may not be able to be ready for, but you better have an anticipation level. And the anticipation level right now of how you present yourself, how you uh, represent not only your, your family, but your program is going to really, really be important moving ahead, not just in the short term, but the long term. I, I am curious. Look, you are known as an incredible recruiter. And that is something that's been with you, you know, since you're really since it came to our attention is when you were assistant at Michigan State and then obviously at Marquette and what you did at Indiana and now Georgia. But are you at all worried about how this will affect recruiting in that? What's going to prevent a school now from going, come here, we've got company A lined up for you for 300 grand, when that company isn't really worried about this person selling their product, they're just a friend of program X, maybe a program that might be in your conference, I don't know, and, and that now the recruitment becomes literally about money on the, you know, above the table, as, as bef compared to before where it was all below the table. Is that a concern of yours? Yeah, no question. I mean, there, there's no question. I mean, it, it, there's a lot of things that wake me up in the morning and not in a good way, you know, the stressful way. And there's no question that that is, I'd be lying to say anything differently because I know what we deal with in recruiting now. And, and um, that's just the way that it is. And, and, and it's very, very hard, especially when there's always going to be factions of people that really don't believe that's happening. And, and, and a lot of times when, when, um, when you, when you've never been a part of it, and this happens in college administrations, when you've never been a part of it or been on the front lines, sometimes when you start talking about the cheating or the things that you're going against, it's like people can't imagine that that really happens. Well, it really does happen. And I think now the world, it's like the portal. I think the transfer portal has gotten a ton of attention. It's over 1,700 kids in Division One. Last time I saw in Division Two, it was over 800. I saw a statistic... I think it was three, maybe going on, well, probably three weeks ago that there were thir still 1,300 
basketball players that were still in the portal between division one and two. Uh, even today, yesterday, some very, very prominent college players are maybe coming back to college and they're going in the portal. I don't think it's going to really take shape till it affects football. And, and that's going to probably come as the, as the, as the regular seasons end uh, before the bowl games, before Christmas time. I think that's when you're going to see another wave of attention at this. And then it's going to get people's attention even more like this is here for real. Well, I don't know if we've had that moment yet with name, image, and likeness. I think it's going to come. And obviously, you can say it's only been in effect two days, but it's been being planned for. And there's a lot of people that are going to see opportunity and see entrepreneurship opportunities. And I don't think any of us have a grasp on how far it's going to go. And I think the bottom line becomes um, there's going to have to be, I, I've said this numerous times, even around here, we're going to have to have a lot of common sense and, and, and some patience as people learn, because things are going to happen that are going to seem like out of this world. I, the, the biggest thing I want to learn is, okay, what will make a kid ineligible? Okay. <laughs> what will get a coach in trouble? What will make a kid ineligible? And I don't think any of us really know that yet. Mm. And the problem is until there are clear cut standards set, but more importantly than that, until people are disciplined or punished for what those are, especially if it becomes where people find that, that coaches or universities were creating um, opportunities for kids, I don't think we're really going to know. So I think the next two to three years are going to be absolutely wild. And I think whatever changes we've seen over the last two may not even be close to what we're going to see over the next two. Fair enough. Well, let's step into the time machine. Let's, let's all go back to Mount Pleasant, Michigan. It sounds so idyllic, a college town right in the center of that beautiful state. How did Tom Crean grow up and become a basketball fanatic? Uh, I love basketball, I love sports at a really early age. There's no doubt about that. Uh, Central Michigan University there where I ended up going was the, was the show in town during the winter. And so going to those games and my first heroes were guys named Leonard Drake and Ben Poquette. Um, my first coaching idols were Dick Parfit and Dave Ginsburg and Ralph Pym. And my first, my high school coach, Denny Kuyper. I mean, those were the guys that I really looked up to. And then over a period of time, it just grew. And um, my memories were the 76 uh, national championship game where Indiana I'm at, I'm at, uh, I'm in school, right? And Michigan is playing Indiana. And our teacher says, okay, we're all going to root for the Michigan Wolverines tonight. All right, we're going to talk about it tomorrow. Everybody watch this game. And I'm sure I'd watched Indiana before, but I don't have real memories of it from watching that game. And I was absolutely hooked. And it's amazing to me. I've said this so many times in the past, but the first two programs outside of Central Michigan and, and Michigan State and Michigan that I really, really took an unreal interest in and like, I don't want to say fell in love with, but I was just so enamored with it at a young age was Indiana in 76. All right. And then Marquette in 77 and, wow. and, and Al McGuire. I mean, and I got to coach it both for 18 years. So that to me, when I look back at it was unbelievable. And, and um, to me, uh, getting a chance to be around it, getting a chance to, you know, I, Dick Vitale, where we live in Florida, uh, he lives in our, he lives in the same vicinity that we live in. So I've gotten to know him well over the years. He did, Marquette games, Indiana games. Well, I actually saw him get three wins 
All right, when he won 16 games, right, with the Detroit Pistons. I got this three wins myself at the Pontiac Silverdome. Like, I was such a basketball nut, but I was a Detroit Tiger nut. I was a Dallas Cowboy nut, and that means I could get to Detroit Lion games. I just, I was very, very fortunate to be able to love sports and be where I could be around them, go see them, play them, and then had people, as I really grew into it, want to help me feel that passion and then eventually get into coaching. We know you as super enthusiastic, high energy, intense basketball coach. But at one point, you were just a 10-year-old kid. Yeah, exactly. What was Tom Crean like as a 10-year-old kid? Were you as amped up, you know, going to school and playing in, in sports after school as you are now on the sidelines? Where did that no. energy enthusiasm come from? No, I, I think, no, it, it wasn't like that at all, I don't think. I was probably very... Uh, I think shy, unconfident. Wow. Um, I wasn't great at sports, but I, but I was in every one I could be in. Um, I, I think, I think it was like that. I mean, I think I, I had some friends that, that I grew up with that, especially as I got into uh, junior high and high school that helped me grow out of a lot of that. But I think, I think there's always things that create an extra level of fuel for you. And, and, what happened to me is my freshman year in high school, uh, I got sick and I basically missed a semester. And, and so I was behind, I was behind the rest of the way through high school wow. and, and I had to make up for it. And I think I look back at this and I think this helped me so much. I had to work extra at school, you know, work in the restaurant at school. I was able to end up getting credit working at a, uh, a restaurant in town. I actually baked uh, I, I did. I baked. Oh, I could make cinnamon rolls. <laughs> I could make cinnamon rolls that you you would you would look to find them like you'd look to find an in and out burger if you lived in the Midwest. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I could I could I had to do all these different things and it shaped me. Well, at the end of the day, I fell a half a credit short from being able to graduate with my class. Hmm. And all I wanted to do was graduate with my class. That's all I wanted. Right. Like uh, that was, that's what I wanted. I'd always looked forward to that. And it embarrassed me so much when I, I wasn't allowed to do it. I had people go to bat for me, uh, talk to the superintendent, talk to the principal to try to get that done. It didn't happen. And I look back at that, like Dwayne Wade always says that the thing that, that, that really fueled him in basketball was when he had to sit out that first year that he played for us or didn't play for us. At Marquette because basketball was taken away from him. So he had to practice. He couldn't play in the games. He couldn't travel with us. I get what he's talking about because that like fueled me because it, from that point on, I wanted to prove myself that I could do things that maybe others didn't think I could do. And this love and passion that I had for, for sports and basketball and, and, and wanting to coach and wanting to help people get better and wanting to work with them is really just it kind of went to another level for me. And I think that's why I started coaching at 18 because I had this chip on my shoulder that not an arrogant chip by any stretch If anything, I was unconfident, but I wanted to prove something. And I think that that really helped me as I look back at that. And, and uh, it's helped me be over the years, you know, where you, where you take over situations um, and then the people that come into your life, you know, and how important that is over a coaching period and the people that mentor you and how God puts them there for you for different reasons. And, and, and it, and it fuels you. It is absolutely fuels you. And I think that's what happened for me. 
Well, you, you talk about those people who encouraged you and helped you make that move at 18, you know, to know at that age what you wanted to do, where you wanted to go. Um, who, who were some of those folks and, and how did it start? How did you go from, hey, I'm, I'm baking cinnamon rolls and I'm just trying to graduate high school to uh, my future is being a basketball coach? Yeah, well, I was actually playing basketball in high school and still working at that school. Like there were there were nights after Friday night games. I had to go back to work while while the, the people were going to the dance mixers and and hanging out. And I had to go back and bake for Saturday and Sunday. Right. Mm -hmm. Or and and so like I had a job like I had a different life, so to speak, when it came to responsibility. And that's one thing that I think every time I've gotten away from certain values in recruiting, I've made a mistake. And one of the values that I think is so important now in this day and age is had some, has somebody had responsibility? Have they been responsible for something, right? Because I think so many times when you, when you, when you get around entitled people, you got to look at it and say, man, if I, am I part of the problem? Have I been part of the enabler? And I think that's what really screws up the world so much, especially screws up athletics is, is that level of entitlement that creates a level of delusion. Well, Growing up, I was fortunate that I had a mother that really helped support me of my dreams. Uh, my dad, even though he, he left home when I was 15, he, before that and even after that, at times he would take me to sporting events. Um, my mom might take me to a Piston game, go shop in a mall, then come back and pick me up because she knew how much it meant. Mm. It starts there. But I think also for me, it was my high school coach, Denny Kuyper and Ted McIntyre. It was a man named Ralph Pym that was assistant coach at, at uh, Central Michigan who, who really took a strong interest in me and eventually at the age of 20 gave me my first job in college basketball at Alma College in Division Three. It was a man named Dave Ginsburg who was an assistant coach uh, at Central Michigan who I grew up watching. It was a man named Charlie Coles who was the head coach at Central Michigan after having a great career at Saginaw High School. Those were my heroes. Those were my household names. You know, it might be Kirk Gibson and Don Mattingly in the major leagues or Isaiah Thomas and Kelly Tripuca in the NBA. But like those were my people that mm. took such an interest in helping me. And I think because because, you know, I had older friends, guys like names that were so big to me, Mark Anderson, Chip Pisoni, Jeff Kendall, all these different people to go along with my friends that were my age, Ray Kelly, Greg Kopke. Tim Odom and Trace Rubeck, all these different people that, you know, you're just, God puts them in your life for a reason and you don't know what it is. And you're really not thinking like that when you're that age. I mean, you're not thinking like that at all, but growing up in church, all the years that I did, I, I really came to understand that at a younger age, like I've been really fortunate, no matter what adversity I felt like I was going through, I was really, really fortunate to have people help me get through it. You mentioned the 1976 Indiana team, which of course is near and dear to our hearts. Mm -hmm. Um, as somebody who ultimately got into the coaching profession, what was Bob Knight to you as just a fan? When you saw him and the way he carried himself, you know, the good and the bad, let's say, but but obviously mostly good when it comes to on the court. Sure. What did Bob Knight mean to you? Well, from a distance, you're only seeing the good. And, right. and, and there's no question about that. And um it really came into light for me. Well, one of the biggest things, you know, I grew up all of a sudden at Indiana deal. Now I was, it was Scott May for me. It was Kent Benson. 
I remember Bobby Wilkerson, you know, all the stuff that happened in that game, Quinn Buckner, Kent Benson came to special Olympics uh, that summer special Olympics in Mount Pleasant was one of the first uh, it might've been the first national special Olympics. I mean, you had people, Houston McTeer, you had great NFL players. You had actresses like Sally Struthers and Susan St. James, Mac Davis, uh, Dick Sargent from Bewitched, all these people that we all grew up watching, right? Yeah. They're on TV and they're there in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. Well, none was bigger than me than Kent Benson and Rose Arena standing in his Indiana uniform, oh. you know, coaching in literally his Indiana uniform, coaching in Special Olympics. So like that became the larger than life thing for me. But I think what really hit me, I'm coaching in high school and at Elma College in the time. And Ted McIntyre, Denny Kuyper, we go to Indiana for a weekend for one of Bob Knight's coaches academies. Wow. And that was as big a moment that I had had in basketball in my life. I'll never forget it. Um, the practices, the, the pre-practices, you know, watching Dan Dockich, Ron Felling, all those guys out there. I'll never forget Pat Graham had to be there on a recruiting visit. And we were all sitting up in the stands, right? And Pat Graham is standing down by a scores table. And like everybody's, who's that? Who's that? Well, all the Indiana people knew that that was Pat Graham, right? So like, you got to feel for how big the recruiting was just mm -hmm. in that type of situation. Like this kid's walking in. I didn't know who he was, but he's a household name to everybody in Indiana. So those kind of moments, we spent the weekend there, learned a lot of basketball. I don't remember as much basketball as I remember the feel that I had in there and how he did things, how he presented, and just the, I got an autograph there and just how big of a uh, larger-than-life figure that I was actually being around that day or that weekend. And I think that those were my first memories before I coached against him and then actually competed against him as a head coach. And later, we developed a pretty good friendship. It didn't survive me coming to Indiana, but we had a pretty good friendship before uh, before I became the Indiana coach. So you get down to Western Kentucky, and and you're you're now coaching at the the in the big leagues, if you will. You're in Division One basketball, but you do meet a teammate there. If I I read that, a teammate for life, if you will. I did. Uh, if you could uh, take us through how you and Joni met and how you did become part of one of the, and, and obviously bringing uh, another addition to one of the great coaching families um, in the country. How did that all happen? Well, it, the, the first time I actually met her, she, I, I had just left being a GA at Michigan state and she had just recently graduated from Pittsburgh and her dad was dad and mom were finishing their first year at Western Kentucky. And one of the assistant coaches on the women's side, I was in the office all the time. And I mean, like all the time it was, I was single. I was the first time away from home outside of Michigan state. Like I was comfortable being in that office, right? I, I, I was either in the office going through a fast food restaurant or going to the mall to play uh, a video game, right? Like my, it was, it, this was pre doing video games at home. I go wait, to the wait, mall. What was your play. video game? What was your, oh, man, Miss, Miss Pac-Man, Miss Pac-Man, <laughs> uh, Oh, and then, and then I would play that football game, right? Like the football Pac game play on the big screen. Right. Yeah. So that was all pre Nintendo and all that kind of stuff. But he said, Hey, you got to get out of here a little bit. And he said, Joni Harbaugh is the sales manager at this place called lover's lane racket and health club. And, and I didn't really want to do that because I didn't see, first of all, I didn't want to spend any money. Right. I was making 33,200 my first year. And, and you might as well, I thought I had a three, another couple of threes in front of that. That was like 3 million to me. Like I, 
I went to Michigan State as a GA for $7,200. And I'd had a couple other GA offers that were twenty-four dollars to $28,000, right? So like money wasn't the issue, but now all of a sudden you get a contract for thirty-three-two, and I thought I was like, uh, it was unbelievable. I didn't want to lose the money. I wanted to hoard it, right? <laughs> and uh, I didn't want to spend it other than on those video games. But I ended up going into the health club. I looked around and uh, I mean, she was beautiful. Uh, there's no question I was smitten. We really didn't get to know each other. I didn't join the health club, uh, <laughs> but, but uh, I would see her around. At one point, she tells the story that, that I'd seen her mother and father in an event we were at uh, that first year for Western Kentucky where I was representing basketball and they were representing football and it was in Nashville. And she says that her mother had said, man, we really met a nice young man. This, this new assistant basketball coach is a nice guy. But we didn't get to know each other till later in the year. And uh, then it took off from there. And, and we went through a lot there. Her father just did an incredible job. It, it's well documented back in the history annals of, of him. But they literally were dropping college football at Western Kentucky while he was there. Ooh, wow. And literally, literally one board member, a man named Joe Iracane from Owensboro, Kentucky, is basically the one that saved football and this is at the time when Jim was playing for the Bears and then the Colts and was an assistant coach making one dollar a year to keep it legal for Jack and there was nothing to see Chicago Bear equipment come in because they didn't have the money right they didn't have the money I mean you, they'd be getting old shoulder pads you'd see people running around in refrigerator Perry practice jerseys <laughs> it, I'm not kidding it's unbelievable it's one of the great books that's never been written and uh, because it was unbelievable, every deal that Jim did for uh, for endorsements, logo athletic or a football dealer, he took the product rather than take the money. He got the product sent to them, you know, for the equivalent of what his money would have been. That's amazing. And I mean, like it was just unbelievable to be coaching at that age, but to watch this family just absolutely bond together because this uh, John was not in the NFL yet. Um, Jim was playing in the NFL and Jack was coaching at Western Kentucky. I think this is when John was coaching at Cincinnati and to see this love for this family was some of the greatest examples I could get for how to raise my own family. And lo and behold, the last game that Jack Harbaugh ever coached, not only did they save football, but they won the national championship in one double a in 2002. And that was the last game that he coached. He retired a national champion. They beat McNeese, McNeese state in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And then he retired from coaching, but he took a program that was, that was left for dead and was saved basically by some fundraising and one man. And then took it to a national championship win. Wow. You know, it, it's funny. I, I don't want to skip ahead here, but I remember, you know, your time at Indiana, you would, when you would talk about recruiting, you talked a lot about recruiting families mm -hmm. that, that you don't just recruit a player, you recruit a family. Absolutely. And, and it seems like, Obviously, you fell in love with Joni, but you were there was like you were marrying into a family and you've always talked about the Harbaugh family. I mean, just like it's your own blood family that that it does seem to be such a part of you embracing the whole family. It the parallels between those two things seem seem so uh, apparent that family is just part of the fabric of what makes Tom Crean Tom Crean. Well, I think it. Yeah, I think it has to be. And again, there's so many times that when you get away from what's most important in recruiting, you make mistakes. And, 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 and like for me, okay, there's no question we want to get people that have skill, that have some toughness, 
that have some awareness and, and intelligence with it. We want to find people that have an athletic upside. We want to find people that have a, an academic and awareness upside. And we want to have people that have a character and a work ethic upside, right? Like when you're recruiting them so young, you've got to be able to really project. And especially when we were at Indiana, I mean, James Blackman and Trey Lyles committed before their ninth grade years, right? <laughs> one we got back, one we didn't. But the bottom line is like, you got to project in such a big way. Well, the other thing has been big that, that I think every time I've gotten away from it, again, there better be a really good reason. Do you recruit year-round winners, people that win because summer basketball is, is as big in these kids' eyes as high school basketball is? I mean, it's just the way that it is. So are they winning year-round, all right? Are they coming from programs? Or are they coming from just teams? And if they're coming from a program, you've really, really got a chance to, 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 to skip some steps of what they've got to learn maturity wise, what they've got to learn understanding wise, you've got a chance to build on that. And, and then, but the biggest above all is you're never just recruiting a person, you're recruiting the family. And that's where you've really got to dive in and, and, and look at it. Okay, has there been a level of entitlement here? Is there a lot of enabling going on? Um, have they had responsibility? Um, are people trying to live their life through their kids or are they just really concerned about their kids being successful? And I think I really grew into more of that as my kids got older, and especially as my son became such a competitive athlete uh, in basketball and baseball and, and going through even the recruiting process that he went through in baseball. And, and um, to me, that's big. I mean, and so like we were always, while I was coaching and growing into that, I was also starting to learn that in my own life. And I think it really went back to those lessons of being with the Harbaugh's at a young age when I first moved away from home, having a mother that did the things that she did for me and my sister having a dad that even though that he wasn't home, he was still helping me pursue this love of sports. And you just realize that there's a lot of different ways to get there. And it's your job as a coach to find out how they're getting there and then keep opening the door so they can get there even better. No, I want one quick follow-up there, Ward. Uh, okay, I got one too. Look, I mean, you talked about a little bit growing up being shy and not confident. Now you're a young kid. I know you're making 33,000. You've hit the big time, but big time. big time, but you are now dating and ultimately marrying a woman who has an NFL quarterback brother in a college high end. And then ultimately NFL coach and a father who is a legend. Weren't you scared as hell going into that family? Uh, early on. Yeah. It, I wouldn't say scared. I would say, <laughs> There was a level of intimidation, like John, the first time I met uh, John and Jim was at John's wedding to Ingrid in Cincinnati. And I was recruiting and I got, to, I came off the road. Coach Willard let me come off the road for one night. So I went into Cincinnati for the wedding and John's in his wedding and John couldn't have been better, right? Like he couldn't <laughs> have been better and it's his wedding night, right? But he couldn't have been better. Jim was giving me the once over three or four times, right? <laughs> like that's like, like they're both unbelievably protective of their sister. But I think in the sense, John was even more so because John was the oldest. So John had to navigate a lot of Joni gym fights. Mm. And, and Joni really knew how to play on the heartstrings. If you listen to them, she knew how to get exactly what she wanted out of her parents. And Jim didn't always like that. So he might resent that a little bit. So he was going to take it out on Joni. And John was the, John was the, uh, he was the scorekeeper. I mean, he, he kept the tally chart there to make sure everybody was equal. Okay. And so from that point on though, Jim was cool that night. 
And, you know, remember, I grew up in Michigan. So Jim Harbaugh was a big deal, man. Yeah. I mean, I had my best friend went to Michigan. And so I'd see him play. I mean, and you're he's just a he's a big, big deal. And so but he really he really brought that to earth for us really quick as as I got to know him. The whole family did. Because, again, you just saw that. I mean, he's, there were times, I mean, we were there when he beat the Detroit Lions at the end of a game in Chicago, and two days later, he's on the cover of Sports Illustrated, right? Like, it's just, he was a, he was a very, very big sports figure, you know, for a long time. And uh, one of the things that people have never really grasped about him, because he doesn't always bring it out, is it's, it's hard-pressed to find somebody that cares about his family and cares about his kids and cares about helping others as much as he does. I think they see it in John. I th and, 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 and John is who he is. I mean, he's as real as it gets and he's unbelievably caring. Well, Jim is too. People just don't see Jim that way because they see the fire and they see those kind of things. And I've had to deal with some of the same stuff. They see the intensity, they see the persona, they read, they hear something and they really don't know all the things that go on behind the scenes. So really what you just have to do is you gotta be true to yourself and you gotta be true to to being who you are and helping people every way that you can, even when people don't see it. And I think that's some of the stuff that I got a lot of confidence from seeing that in that family. Well, you were able to display Jim's um, love of family and wanting to do anything he can to help his family. When you see him jump out from the IU bench to put down stools for the IU players, uh, after I, I think this is after he appeared in the Super Bowl as a head coach, like you know, it was really remarkable to see how much he wanted to be there for you in any way he could. That that was something I think will stick with all of us forever. I still have that picture in my phone. I really should tweet it because it is the it was so real, right? Right down to the point that he was dressed in his coaching gear, which he wore every day, right? I mean, he wore the <laughs> the black fleece sporting honors pullover, the gray khaki pants and the football cleats. And, but that was a big deal to him. And he, he wanted to be in the mix. He wanted to be a part of it. Um, it was like a bucket list thing for him, right? He always used to want to sit behind the bench, even going back to Michigan state. He was part of when we were at Michigan state, he was part of the, uh, of the pep rally. Uh, when we were getting ready to play, who we play, we played Duke in the final four and he was part of the pep rally. So here's this, big time Michigan Wolverine alum and he's wearing Spartan gear because he's always been about family. But mm -hmm. Jim is uh, Jim's unique like that. Like th there's no question. And you guys might ask it, but I'll bring it up. When we, when we, when we were just starting to really get good that year and it would have been my fourth year, I think it was. And Verdell Jones, the third got hurt at Michigan and they had just played John and Jim had just played in their respective AFC and NFC championship games mm -hmm. and the Super Bowl was in Indy that weekend. So Jim actually came in on Tuesday and John, I think then came in on Wednesday night. So we were in Michigan on Wednesday night and we lose the game. Verdell gets hurt. We lose the game. We come back the next day for practice on Thursday and we're getting at it. And John and Jim come to the practice and they're watching the practice. And then I have them speak to the team after. And that's when all this, we went to another level because we got Purdue on Saturday. And this is when the, the bats and the vampire bats, all that stuff came out that day. John talked first. And if you know John and Jim, John did an unbelievable job. Well, Jim was not going to not try to top that. So <laughs> John does a great 
job with the speech. And then Jim gets up and Jim just starts like it's he's in the pregame talk the night before, right before they go out with his 49ers, right? Like he was still in coaching mode. And he said, you got to play like vampire bats. You got to play like poisonous vampire bats. <laughs> and um, it was unbelievable. I mean, like our kids, were, they were, they went from being starstruck to feeling like they were talking to their best friend. I mean, their best friends, those guys were unbelievable. Well, long story short, a couple nights later, we go to Purdue. We had not beaten Purdue yet. The place is packed. There's thousands of people waiting for us out by the bus. Uh, and we go in there and we win that game. And that's kind of the coming out party of Victor Aladipo. I think he had 24 that night. And it's, it's Cody and they're trying to beat Cody up and the whole deal. And we win that game going away. And I'll never forget what I'd done. And we couldn't get the live bats. I actually did look into it. <laughs> you tried. I actually did. I, it's, it's true story. I did look into it. And I wasn't looking to getting people from, you know, finding some bats, having somebody capture them. Cody took that story to another level. That, that was not quite how it happened. <laughs> we were actually looking if anybody had real bats that we could get the bats in in a trainer. I didn't want anybody poisonous, but I thought it'd be a heck of a prop. You, you didn't but call Wuhan for a bat, did you? Well, maybe I didn't think of it then, but we ended up buying plastic toy vampire bats. We bought about 12 of them and I had them all in my bag. And uh, before the game, I started throwing those bats around the <laughs> locker room and I waited to the end and I'm throwing them and they're like, they're rubber bats like they're almost hitting guys and we're throwing them and and guys were riled up coming out and one of my great memories of nine years at indiana is running off that mackey court in the hallway and danny moore yelling we're vampire bats we're vampire bats we're poisonous vampire bats like it was just it was a celebration of all right and and uh the next day was the super Bowl. we got on a heck of a run that that year the rest of the way went to the sweet 16 yeah um, you know, lost to Kentucky in that game, the whole thing. But like, there are those guys, they, they were a turning point for our team that year. And, mm -hmm. it, and it was, it was a time when we really needed it. All right. Well, look, well let's go ahead, Ward. Well, yeah. I mean, this is, this is, we're going to jump around a bit just because that's how it's going. That's what but, I do. Yeah. <laughs> we're all on the same page that you were talking about recruiting and because it's something that you've done throughout your career, I thought we could hit it now is you get lucky once to identify a guy who turns into say Dwayne Wade, who's going to be a hall of fame player, but you have done that on the regular. You just mentioned Vic, you know, and I'm wondering because you're recruiting the family and skills or athleticism, all this kind of stuff, but you have a track record like no other about finding the OG and the Juwan, the guys who are really under recruited and end up, you, we watch them during the NBA playoffs. Like frequently there's more than one of those guys out there. And I wonder, do you, is there just some innate talent instinct you have or do you have a secret you'll share to <laughs> identify guys who are out of the top 100, out of the top 150, who end up playing in the league? Well, I think it's a combination of things. And we really try to sell it in recruiting in the sense that, like, our MBA money now is at $710 million that these guys have earned. Wow. And 75% of that money, which Victor and, and uh, uh, Dwayne Wade are a part of, but 75% of that money are on guys that weren't ranked in the top 100. And I think, uh, I think growing up the way that I did helped that, you know, I was never a star player. So like 
And as a coach, you know, when you start out in division three and, and those type of things, like you're looking for players that have something like the biggest thing to me in division three was when we could beat a division two scholarship school. Okay. And I think we did it five times in my time there. Like that was like, that was like signing a McDonald's all American when you're in division three. So like your, your, your experiences help you. So you're always looking for something and you're looking for something that's, it's not necessarily if anybody else can't see it, but it's what you see. And I think what I learned over a period of time is when you see something in somebody, you trust your instincts, you look for what they can do. And I think, I think the, the, the professional background of where I've always looked at pro sports, but having brother-in-laws that have been a part of that, the, the, and I saw this with my son in baseball, you know, the, the major leagues were very much about projection where the colleges, and this is where some of the guys were recruiting like Chris Lamonis gave him the opportunity to come to Indiana. Chris said to me, he says, I'm not trying to bring him just because he's your son. He said, I'm really not. I'm trying to bring him because every time that he's been in a big game, he has delivered. Like that was like, that meant a lot to me because we wanted Riley to be able to play somewhere on his own merit, not just because of what I did. And that's why I'm so happy for Chris Lamonis winning the other night. And, and, and I worked with two unbelievable guys in baseball with Tracy Smith and, 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 and Chris Lamonis. I mean, just unbelievable. Well, I learned a lot over a period of time that those guys were really successful as coaches because they could project. Right. And I think the people that can project are the ones that have a leg up. And I think how you project is, is how you see somebody, do you have a vision for them? And, and is there something about them that really stands out? Like Victor, people believe the first couple parts of this, but they hardly ever believe the sec or the, the, the other part, but it's so important. You could see his athleticism. You could see his energy. You could see that he could jump and that he really wanted to play defense and, but you know what, what you couldn't see is when he was around people and I'd watch from a distance, he gave unbelievable eye contact to the people that were in front of him. And he respected his coaches in a big way. Therefore his coaches all right, promoted him, not just as what he was, but as what he was going to be because of his work ethic and who he was as a kid. So like when you see that and you feel it too, right? It's not about his numbers. It's not about did he start, did he do this? When you see that, like, okay, this makes sense, okay? Because we can really, really work with this. Because I've always been about athletic upside more even than the basketball upside. Because if you have an athletic upside, there's a really, really high ceiling for you. If you have that awareness, if you ha- there's certain skills you have to have, all right? But, but, and we try to, and I try to navigate that. But like, if you got that athletic upside and you've got that character upside, there's something that we can find. But I learned over a period of time that I have to see it, right? As an assistant couldn't just say to me, hey, man, I really see it. If I didn't see it, there were times I went against my instincts and I made mistakes. But if I could see it, then I knew. I think the biggest thing for me is this. When, and, and again, getting Wade, getting Dwayne really helped with this because we saw things in him that others weren't seeing. And I saw the character and how much he wanted to be successful. And he didn't have any confidence at that age. And he was the biggest kid on his high school team. But when you have a vision for someone you are willing to go above and beyond to help fulfill that vision, even when they don't feel like it. Because many, many days when you're trying to get somebody to be as good as they've got to be, you've got to be able to outlast them when they don't want to go that hard or when they don't want to go through it or when their self-doubt kicks in mm-hmm. and, and, and that they don't have it. And, and I think that's really, really important. I've been very fortunate 
Anthony Edwards was ranked number one, and he was as hard a worker. I mean, he's in that class with Wade, Aladipo, Hall, Sheehy, OG, all those guys, Halls, I mean, all those guys, and that level of work that he put in. He was a rare guy. But so many times, getting that person that had that chip on their shoulder because they had been doubted, and then me having the fuel to keep pushing them when, when, it, when it may not look that good. People forget Victor Aladipo started five games as a freshman. I mean, in this day and age, he'd be gone in a second, right? I mean, he started five games. I mean, he, he shot 14% from three in the Big Ten his sophomore year. He shot 47% as a junior. You know, he found, he came in with a work ethic, but he started to get the belief. And I think that's what you have to have as a coach. It's not really a secret. It's just a, it's just a, it's a, it's a marathon. You've got to keep having that vision for them, no matter who else, who has it or who doesn't have it. You got to have it. You, it's, it's conviction is what it is. And, and when you have a conviction for something, I think you're, you're willing to go above and beyond to push through. And it doesn't always work. And sometimes you push too hard. And there's no question I pushed too hard on guys. But I didn't push too hard on the guys that really, really had it in them. And I think that's the thing that, that, uh, that I'm proud of and I hope I can continue to do even with these new rules kick in the way they are. Because it's going to get harder to get Victor Aladipos. Because it's mm -hmm. just going to be, if you're not playing right away, you're going to leave so quick. Right. Yeah. And I say that all the time. We've got to be able to do what we do, knowing that this landscape can change. That's why we got to really dive into the backgrounds of values and responsibility and how are they being raised? Are they being raised where they're being raised to coach by, by, by coaches that want them to win and are holding them accountable? Or are they just being raised on working out in a gym with a trainer? There's a place for both, but you can't just have the one-on-one -on -one workout mentality without being responsible for winning and think you're going to come to college and be a part of a really good program. Take Georgia out of this for a second, because it would be unfair for me to ask this question, including Georgia. What is the most happy you have been in landing a single recruit? Um, Oh, Cody Zeller. No question. Yeah, no question. It, it, that's uh, um, I was in tears. I mean, there's no question about that. And, and basically because he set me up on the day that he called and it was tight now. I mean, it was tight to get Cody, you know, Butler was certainly in there and, and, and probably more than people think, but Carolina was really in there. Mm -hmm. And, uh, old Roy, uh, old Roy is a really strong recruiter yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that way. All right. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, he's aggressive. I mean, he really is. I mean, he was, he was very, very good. And, and, uh, you don't get in the hall of fame without being really good at a lot of things. And he was really good at recruiting, but, but when he called, he really, I really felt the setup that he was going to tell me he was leaving. Really? And it was one of the most, I went from having one of the most sick feelings for about five seconds, six seconds in my body that I could possibly have to having a complete swing. Like I haven't really had in life. Mm -hmm. And I was so excited and uh, my wife was there and we drove over to tell my son at school, man, I was crying when I was driving over uh, to St. Charles school. I was so proud, but I mean, I felt like that in a lot of cases where you're so excited, but we knew Cody was the turning point. Right. And not just because of how good he was, but because of who he was. Right. And, and because of who he was and who his family was not just because of their name, but because of who they were. And that's why it was so big to get him. Right. And, but I'd say I'd never underestimate, you know, we had people questioning us on not getting certain Indiana kids that year that we got Victor and Will. And I learned again there, I man, you just persevere, you stick to your guns, you believe in what you believe in, because 
there's no Indiana basketball the way we had it, obviously, without Victor and Will. And there was nobody saying, oh, well, way to go, right? The people that knew Will and Victor were, but but the fans, they didn't get it. And you just had to learn, like, man, we got to, we know what we're doing here. You know, we just got to let this ride out and play out. So there's been a lot of great moments, but there's no question the Cody one was big. So listen, we're going to skip because we don't really love Michigan State, as you probably know. So yeah, we're skip those years. For sure you learned a lot of important things from the Hall of Fame head coach up there. <laughs> but whatever. And and obviously your time at Marquette was super successful. And and you've talked about Dwayne Wade, you know, and we love him. I mean, Dwayne Wade is one of my favorite players of all time. But let, let's get to Indiana and let's get to the first phone call that came to you or first conversation where Indiana was a real possibility. What was that? How did that play out? Well, they actually had said they'd called when, um, when uh, Kelvin got the job, but lo and behold, the search firm had said that they called at the time. I never got that call or, or it, it, it didn't, it, I never saw it. And so I never really bought into the fact that, well, they, they tried to get a hold of me then because I think there's, it's too easy to get a hold of people if you really want. <laughs> but I was really good friends with Kelvin Sampson at that time. So, cause I'd coached with him on that, that FIBA team that you're talking about. Chris right. Paul was our point guard. We were together for 19 days and won a gold medal. I mean, it was a great time. Well, but, what's going uh, on with, uh, what's going on with Chris Paul these days? Is he, is he still <laughs> I, I think he's, yeah, he's just kind of carrying, he's, Finishing his career up, I think, and <laughs> running around on one leg and not making any shots. Chris Paul is a, that's a killer, man. I mean, he's, mm-hmm. and you could see, he was a quiet killer and he still is a somewhat quiet killer, but he was a quiet killer even at the age of 19 on that team that summer. I mean, there was no question by the first hour of practice with 30 kids trying out for the team. He was the leader of the group back in, in uh, New Jersey. Just, I mean, just so great. I mean, just a great person, but but uh, really what happened is we were in the NCAA tournament. We got beat by Stanford in the final 32. We're back home. I'm starting to make my plans for, uh, for the season. We went out to Arizona because one of my former coaches, Darren Horn, was at Western Kentucky, and they were playing UCLA in the Sweet 16. So we took our family out there to support them. Mm-hmm. And um, really what happened was on the middle of the night, Sunday night, um, I got a call from Eddie Fogler and, um, who was running the search yeah. and he gave me a little time to think about it. And we set up a meeting and I had a meeting with, uh, president McRobbie, uh, Steve Ferguson, uh, Rick Greenspan, Harry Gonzo was there, uh, and Eddie Fogler. And we basically met in the middle of the night in Chicago. And um, I drove back home after that. And whether it was nerves, whether it was not eating right, whatever it was, I was so sick uh, on that morning, the day that I got the job, like I actually fainted in the morning. Like I was so sick. I'd had a, it, 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 the stomach stuff, it hit me. So like I was, I was hurting. And uh, I think they took that as that I wasn't interested. And I'm no, no, I'm like really sick here for a minute. Like I gotta get my bearing. <laughs> but um um, later that day on that Tuesday, you know, uh, accepted the job. The hardest thing I've really had as great as that moment was with getting Cody. Uh, the hardest thing was telling my team and we brought him to my house and, um, that was a really, really tough time. I mean, really tough time because 
I had no intention of leaving. I'd only ever talked directly to one other school while I'd been at Marquette. And it was after, um, after the final four and Roy Williams at the time had wanted me to be the one to replace him. And so oh. we were friends. And so I actually interviewed with them. I was sitting in the parking lot of the Miller lot or Miller, Miller park parking lot after a Brewers Cardinals game, sitting in a car talking to them. And it got down to us, me and Bill self, as far as I know, and obviously Bill got it. So I was the only other job. There'd been other jobs, but I'd never talked to anybody directly. And so, but Indiana, I did. And it was a lot of it growing up the way that I did. It was a lot of, uh, being at that clinic with Bob Knight, it was competing against uh, Indiana as an assistant and then competing against Bob Knight when I was at Marquette and he was at Texas Tech and just the uh, competing against Indiana and the, and the great Alaska shootout the year that they went to the final four with Mike and we were at Marquette and the next year we go to the final four. So like I had that love for it and I really probably picked the job or, or, or accepted it based on my heart more than my head because I I didn't ask enough of the right questions in that interview. And frankly, not enough of, of what was really going on was brought to light. And some of that, I'm not sure they all knew. And, and so I'm not sure they do all Do you knew. believe that? Or do you believe they kind of lied? A I don't bit? know. No, I, 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 I think. Cause I would have lied about it because yeah. it was bad. Well, here's the one thing that bothered me the most at the end of the day. Do I think they all knew it? No. Um, do I think they knew more than they let on? Yes. But the one thing that bothered me the most was president McRobbie said, I know there's been a lot of talk about Rick Greenspan. Rick Greenspan is going to go through this with you. You're going to be with Rick Greenspan. And I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but I'm not paraphrasing. I mean, that's exactly how I walked out of it. And three months and a day later, he's out. Mm -hmm. And, um, that those first three months, um, I always people say you want that I should write a book and I don't know if most people would believe it right they would think it was it was made up I mean it, it's it was just unbelievable those first three months but to you once I got in and once I got into that press conference and saw Tim Garl who I always looked up to uh, met some of the other coaches got in there and I, I felt I felt good I, I had a lot of really bad feelings in my stomach for leaving those kids at Marquette. And we ended up leaving four guys that scored over 1600 points Yeah, and a team that we thought could be a final four team the next year. And I felt I, I was still dealing with that, that emotion, but I mean, I was so honored to be the Indiana coach because of the way I'd grown up and uh, I'll never forget. You know, I remember those 76, 77 games, right. To me, like those were big moments to me in my life. And now to be able to coach at both of them, like that meant a lot to me personally. And, and they weren't driving forces, but at the end of the day, you know, you don't sit and think a lot about a lot of things, you know, you don't look back, but like, those are things that I look back at. Can you well, it, it, I just, and I'm sure you know this, but when you said it's Indiana, mm -hmm. you said in two words, what we all grew up with an understanding of a feeling of, uh, a desire, obviously, to get back to, uh, which which your return did did end up becoming just that. This thing, we it, we it's our we felt it's our birthright because of how we grew up and the time we grew up. But by the time you were getting there, we we're like, will it ever be that again? And that that's something that I think anybody who watched, listened to that press conference, 
or or maybe didn't and is just now doesn't realize when somebody on a message board or in a conversation says it's Indiana. Like we we all know what that means, but I, not before um, and then ever since. It's you saying it in that press conference that that sums up everything we feel and we hope the program you know, that it was and that we hope it will be again. And and I, I hope you realize how much it meant then and will always mean to all of us. Well, I appreciate that because that was how I tried to explain it to my wife, you know, the day before. And my kids were too young, but that's how I tried to explain it to the family too, right? Because there were very few people that I would call to get advice on that. My brother-in-laws were two of them, as was my father-in-law. Uh, and, and because we had a really th good thing going, I knew there were going to be issues because there were rumors all over the place, you know, stuff that was going on during the season, stuff that had happened in Chicago with some of those guys. Like, people knew in college basketball there were some issues. But I'd never really been a part of anything like that. I'd never really been in a situation of probation, so I didn't know how to prepare for it. Mm -hmm. And we didn't know what it was going to be like. But you know you're walking in, and, and there's going to be issues. You just don't know what they're going to be. And that's really how it was in my mind. Well, you know what it is, it's Indiana, right? We're going to overcome that. And that's how I felt. I mean, that's how I felt really when it all came about is I was justifying it in my mind to leave. Right. And, and, uh, because I actually took a pay cut and, um, um, I mean, I was making a lot of money and I made a lot of money there, but I mean, I literally took a pay cut and didn't over negotiate it. Right. Because I really wanted to go to now I wouldn't do that again. Right? <laughs> <laughs> be completely honest, but, but like I did, like I really wanted to be there. And that was that was almost immature of me to look at it that way. But like I really grew up loving that program. Right. And again, like I'd said before, we'd been there even for other things because John had coached with Cam Cameron for a year. Right. We've been there on another side of it. And I'd coached there against Michigan State. So you knew the power of it. And so yeah, that's how I felt, right? And 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 that's though that was actually a a lived uh, I don't want to say mantra as much, but like we lived that, you know, as we were getting through that, we always knew we could get through it because because of the power of that program. We just didn't know what we had to get through. So we're not asking you to write the book for us on this podcast, but you got to give us one specific thing that happened in those first three months where even you just shook your head and go, I can't believe this is actually what I'm walking into. Is there one uh, specific that, that has- Yeah, there were moment? numerous. There were numerous. Um, I would say when one of the player's mothers said that if you can get his two flunk drug tests wiped out, uh, because three and you're out, right? If you can get his two flunk drug tests wiped out, we'll come back. And then when we couldn't, I was blamed for not being able to deal with the youth of America. Um, that was one. You know what? You know, at the end of the day, all this stuff. I mean, again, the kids that left, the Eric Gordons, DJ Whites, Adam Allfelds, all those guys. I mean, that's a completely different story. I never got a chance sure. to coach these guys. But, right. Um, I would think I would think one day going in the locker room and finding three roach clips and two lighters uh, was was a moment for me. Um there were numerous ones. Um, did did Eli Holman throw a plant at you? No, at, at our secretary. He, he oh, didn't. I don't God. think he. I don't think he threw. He he slammed a a a, a pot a, a plant. 
he slammed it across the room and it just missed her head. BJ McElroy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But it wasn't at me. Now there was other things said in the office in front of my wife that were with me, but I was more scared for him than I was for me. Cause you because, just thought he, he, had, he was on. Oh, yeah. He, he, he was not handling it. Well, he was right. not handling it. And, and, um, and I was more scared for him. And, and I, that we, and I didn't know him very well. Right. And, and, uh, it wasn't about how good of a player I thought he could be. There were just a lot of things that just didn't make sense, but I hadn't been there. So you had to navigate it. But that's why Rick Greenspan was so good um, going through this. I mean, I've said this numerous times, like I get the job and on the second, I'm in an academic meeting and we're going through the academics and we got 18 Fs, like it's legit. I mean, we got 18 Fs on April 2nd and I go into meeting with Rick Greenspan and Grace Calhoun, and I like I'm, I'm like shook, right? Like, how are we gonna do this, right? I'm like shook, and she says, "Well, it's, it's actually not 18; it's 19." <laughs> like, <laughs> Thank you, I had Grace. no idea, right? Like, what are we doing, right? And yeah, but but like we got through it. We I was proud that we got it down to 11, right? I mean, <laughs> we got it down to 11 in three and a half weeks. But it just um. It, it was hard to describe after talking to Dan Dockage one time and it was early on in that tenure and, and it was, it was brief, but it was enough for me to know he'd walked into a situation that was tough. He tried to do what he could do with it, but even him, as much as he loved Indiana, he didn't know what, what he was dealing with there. Right. Because it wasn't any type of Indiana that he knew and he knew Indiana as well as anybody. Right. right. So like that, that helped uh clear but it was tough man i mean it, it was hard but um, that's why i wanted to go through it with rick and that's why that that really was a that was a blind side when when he was let go big I, blind I, I am really curious about how do you reconcile what you said just a few minutes ago was you were really good friends with kelvin sampson before this happened you get in there and within three months you realize that this is the worst thing you could ever imagine how did you reconcile this guy that you built a friendship with that you thought you knew pretty well and what was going on under his program, what happened with your relationship with him? Well, I wanted to make it work. I, I wanted, I wanted to make the relationship work. There's no doubt about that. And we actually talked on the phone a couple times and he was mad, but he was helpful. And, and, and it's funny because he, he said some things about some people that he was actually right on nine years later, he was as right as could be. But, but, the, but the thing was, is the more I got in there, okay, now he was the head of the program and he had recruited the guys, but they just made some mistakes in recruiting, which we can all make. And those things just like compounded, right? I mean, they just compounded. And I don't mean the Eric Gordons of the world and DJ White's, no, right? Sure. Like not those guys. I'm talking about other situations where I think the thing that shocked me the most guys is like, we didn't have guys going to the gym. Like we're trying to do our individual workouts and get our program established, hire a staff, recruit. Like we didn't have guys that wanted to be in the gym. And, and so it's one thing to have some things not going great or doing your own thing away from the court. But a lot of times those guys, they still want to be on the court. And I didn't get that feeling. Like I thought that's where I thought the culture of the program was really in a tough spot because guys didn't want to be in there. They, it wasn't that they didn't want to be coached. They didn't want to work. I mean, they didn't want to be, you know, be mad at me, be mad that your coach is gone, be mad at the world, but get in the gym because you love basketball. 
Right. And there just wasn't enough of that. And, um, but our friendship didn't make it. Unfortunately, I still have a lot of respect for him. There were some other things I think that played into it and it didn't make it, but uh, it never would change the respect that I had for him as a coach, what he's done at Houston. Now Um, I tried, it didn't work. uh, So be it. But that doesn't mean that I, that I don't think he's a really good coach, but, but uh, you know, other things, I had a friendship with Bob Knight before I got in there. Yeah, and, I'm and, curious if you could talk about that a little bit. Well, I had I looked up to him, but I got to know him through Tony LaRusa. You know, he was right. great friends with Tony. I got a relationship with Tony starting in 2002 uh, We actually flew together on a plane I chartered out of uh, Milwaukee. He had spoken Green Bay. He and his wife, we flew out of Milwaukee. We were in St. Louis for a weekend. Bob Hamill was there. Mm. Bob Murray. We went to some games. We'd been together at spring training. I'd coached against him. But it really, unfortunately, it all changed when I took the Indiana job, and and you just uh, held it against you. Yeah, I think there was a, I think there was a level of bitterness, and I think, you know, in defense of him, because I got to know Tim and I got to know Pat, and they were good, but I think in defense of him, you know, he was so angry about what had happened to him, and the more that I was in Indiana. And you and you know when when Indiana's rolling and the way that passion is like, it's such a great feeling, right? And so like I I learned to get it more. You know I learned it. I didn't like it. I didn't. I'd never done anything to him, right? I mean we were a couple mm-hmm. coaches removed, but I thought I've said this before and I and I still say it. The best thing I could do was revere him and respect him at every turn. You did that. I, you sure. know when when the new building when the new building went up, guys. They took every Bob Knight picture out of there with mm-hmm. the exception of what's up in that spirit of 76 room. Like I wasn't having that, right? Like we put his picture back in the press room and then we took those old pictures that had been in the hallways and we put them up right down the line by the locker room in the weight room and the cook center. Yeah. Like it's, that's a really complicated deal back there. That's why that was so awesome that he went back, you know, when he did, he actually went back in one night when we were at Nebraska. Uh, Dr. Rink took him through the building. It stayed private. It stayed secret. Wow. But that was big. It was big for his friends to have him see that. It was big for me to have him see that because all I wanted him to know is no matter what, you are absolutely revered here. Nothing will ever change that. And, and so like, to be around Tim, to be around Dr. Rank, to be around Dr. Allfeld when the former players would come back, Calvert working with me, and you'd hear the Bob Knight stories. I mean, it was like a clinic. It was like an absolute clinic every time you talk to somebody about Bob Knight. And I loved it. I still have so many of the notes because I looked up to him so much as a coach. And, and um, but he actually did come in the building. He actually did go in the cook center. So he actually saw it and it never got out. Right. It never got out because that is incredible that it never got Dr. Rank took him through. Right. And I don't mind saying it. I don't mind saying it because, you know, that had to soften him a little bit. Right. But as as more time went on, it's almost like I didn't respect that he had dropped me when I'd done nothing. But I did respect how he felt. Right. About Indiana. But I was really hoping that I could do something that would help that. So anything that I could do on the outside with reverence, with respect, with, with, with his former players, with making sure he was always in that video. I mean, like 
Hey, I had people say, we don't need to put him in that video. I say, you're crazy, right? Like that's part of who it is. And I'm not, I'm not trying to roll anybody under the bus, but people that think there weren't things that went on behind the scenes, you know, you can say anything you want to the public and the media. That's not how it was all the time. And, and, but doing what's right meant that we're going to honor this legend no matter what. That's why I, I was really, it, it was great. Obviously I wasn't there when he came back, but through the TV screen, I could sense the emotion those people had. And I, I had a sense of it myself because we always yeah, we wanted were, that while I was there. We always wanted that. We, we were fortunate enough to be there that day. And it was, it was extraordinary. And thank you for doing everything you could to eventually get us to that day. Um, I do want to talk, you talked about the first three months, but I want to talk about the first three seasons and how you survived like this this is maybe this is the greatest rebuild in the history of college basketball and eric and i were in vegas for the tournament that you know that was it was just it was it was brutal i'm sure it was brutal for fans for the players and certainly for the coaches how when it's it's not just the first season and the second season, but three full seasons. And when you got Cody's commitment, clearly that there was light at the end of the tunnel once Cody said yes. But up to that point, how did you keep the belief? Well, um, I would say I, I would start with this. I would think it was my faith and belief in God and belief that that you're going to get through things, that you're going to get through it. I think the way uh I was raised the way I was raised in coaching. I called my old coach, Ralph Willard, one night, and I left him a message. I didn't get him. He was coaching at Louisville at the time, and I said, there is no way that I could handle what I'm handling here if I hadn't worked for you for five years mm. because he had helped rebuild Western Kentucky and had gone into pit. Like, there was no way I would have – you know, the rebuild at Michigan State was different, right? It was, it was a different – there was still a lot – of good there, even though Tom took over for a legend and, and not only did the legend leave in Judd Heathcote, but so did Sean Respert and Eric Snow, you know, the yeah. starters in the backcourt. That's a tough deal too. Yeah. So we'd been through it. You know, we went into Iowa one night with a walk-on guard and another walk-on guard that, that was on the division three JV team uh, in, in, in a division three school. And those were our starting guards against Jess Settles and Iowa and the whole deal. Right. So like we had to persevere. But Indiana was unlike anything else. And I just think it was that, it was, it was my family, it was my, my confidence because I'd been part of winning and been part of programs. But I think the greatest thing was how our staff kept everybody together. Like my regret of the first year is that we just didn't go all out, manic, pressing, you know, just playing chaotic basketball. Because the more we tried to play in the half court, the more we couldn't do it, right? Mm -hmm. And we tried. I to establish, I was always taught you establish three things when you take over a job. You establish work ethic, you establish style of play, and you establish an enthusiasm for the program. And, and um, we're trying to do that. But we couldn't really, I mean, for us to have a, a shot with five minutes to go was almost like a win for us that year. And, 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 and we had some unbelievable comebacks. And we're really, the only time that I really lost it and was beside myself was when we got beat at home by Illinois that year. We had come all the way back on a Sunday and uh, we had played a, a combination defense. They were having trouble breaking it. And uh, eventually we lost it. it. We could never overcome it. But like, that was probably the one day that I looked at it and said, man, is this ever going to turn? 
And that really only happened the first year. No, I had, I second guessed myself heavy. That was those first three months. Uh, I really second guessed myself. I actually had a chance to go back to Marquette on the Monday after taking the job on a Tuesday. Uh, when that was, do you want to come back? And I didn't feel like I could do it, you know, and, and I wonder, so man, did I make a mistake? Not, not going back, but I didn't want to do that. You know, I was never raised to go into a situation. And, and again, at that point, I didn't know how bad it was going to be, but like I was dug in because I loved Indiana. And I think that's what really helped me as much as anything. And we had a staff of guys that knew how to pick each other up on the days we got down the most. You know, we, we talk as fans a lot about those first three years, especially the first year and, and the second year. How, look, as Indiana fans, Tom, we have a lot of experience with losing recently, which sucks. But I don't know how to say this without sounding glib, but losing was never more enjoyable than those first two years from a fan because I felt, and I know Ward did and many of us did, you were giving it more than what seemed to be humanly possible. And and so were those kids, many no of them. No question. The kids and, really were, and they didn't know. It wasn't and, their fault. And, and I wanted to, to say, and we've become friends with this guy. I think he's one of the most underappreciated Hoosiers ever, Verdell Jones. No question. No because question. Verdell came to you first when there mm-hmm. was no promise of winning ever, really. And he, he was there and stayed the course. You know, you had a lot of guys like Nick Williams and Stanford. And, you know, there were lots of guys that came and went, Malik's story. But Verdell came you first and stayed. And it's why the end of his career is so just emotionally depressing because of getting injured and not being sure. able to play in the NCAA tournament. But we love Verdell. But I just, while I know losing sucks and it sucked for us, but did you find any just pure joy of basketball knowing that you had a bunch of kids who were giving it their all when they knew they probably weren't going to win? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely I did because what happened is you got back to the root of basketball coaching, no matter what, right? Mm -hmm. And I said it at the beginning, one of the greatest uh, stories that we could have to sell what was going on in Indiana, I think Pat Forty wrote it. I think it was Pat. It was ESPN.com, and it talked about crowds. And I'll never forget, Arizona State was in the top 10 or 12. And outside of the Arizona game, they were putting, I think it was 56, 58% capacity in the building. Yet at Indiana, we weren't winning any games, and we were in the high 80s, low 90s. Like, that we were not getting it back and everybody thinks this is corny and cliche-ish and I don't care because I lived it we were not getting it back without the fans we were not getting it back and and the students we lost you know that was an unbelievable student body at games right 7800 8100 we we're down to half that that year right like that's where we were at we lost that now eventually we got it back up to where it was 16,000 and a waiting list, right? You couldn't go to every game, but that first year we were half, half the student body. So that's why the people coming in and, and it was Fred's idea on the $5 tickets, which was a really good idea that allowed people to come in and experience it. Because I think any program that you're ever in, and fortunately for me, I learned this with Tom Izzo at Michigan state. I definitely operated this way at Marquette, but there was no other way to operate other than this at, at Indiana. It is a grassroots program. It is a county to county, city to city, rural road to city road program. And the moment that you get away from that, you are, you are, you are doing a disservice to Indiana basketball. And I was raised in a rural area, so it was not hard for me. You know, my town was 32,000. It was not hard for me to look at it that way. 
but but anytime you cannot go into Indiana and just be so locked into what's going to happen with corporate dollars, which are important, donor money, which is important, obviously. Okay, you you can not get away from the grassroots fan because that's how it was built. And we don't get that back without that, right? We don't get that back. And and uh, that's what, those are the memories that I have. They're just so unbelievable. The fans just staying with us. That's why that, that Illinois loss was so emotional because the fans were driving the train to bring us back. And we were right there. We had the same thing happen with Ohio State. I mean, we were right there, right? And right there for us might be eight to 10, right? right? I mean, it might be eight to 10, but we were right there. And what it did is it just, it brought me a tremendous love for what do we have to do to win the game, right? Like the pure nuts and bolts of basketball. And uh, it helped me. It helped me as the years went on because like you had to do anything you could do to stay above water in those games. So you took chances, you created different things. You had to be really good in timeouts. We did different defenses. You had to do anything to be in the game. And it was, it was pure basketball. You put Tijon Job at the front of a one-three-one. Sure did. <laughs> Tijon's the only. Tijon is the only one I've ever had knock out a guy in warmups. <laughs> the Minnesota game, I love Tijon, but the Minnesota game, he came down on Danny Moore's head, and he had a concussion. He was out, couldn't go. <laughs> wow, you, they you blacked talk. out. <laughs> we you had talk. it wild, man. It was, but without all that, we don't get to what we have. Now I'd like to got there faster. But I mean, without all that, we don't get to what we have. Well, you, you talked about one of the three things you have to do is, is establish work, work ethic. Um, and also then another one is uh, love for the program. Sure. And even, even before Cody rolled to town, there's a local kid named Jordy Holes who showed up, who seemed really important to establishing the template of of what would become the number one team in the country. Can you talk about how important it was getting Jordy in there and, and how he helped you establish what the program would become? Well, the two national names that really helped push this was Maurice Creek, who we were in really good with at Marquette, and, and then Christian. There's no question about it because Christian, <laughs> Christian had who's who. Maurice could have had who's who and had somewhat of who's who, but Christian had who's who. But to get those two, well, Jordan, people forget, he not only had a Purdue offer and a Stanford offer, he had a Duke offer. Mm. Like he had a legit Duke offer. And so like when, when we're seeing Jordan Halls and getting Derek Elston to stay with it was big. But, but seeing Jordan Halls, see, for me, I saw Travis Diener. So if I hadn't coached a guy like Travis Diener, because Travis Diener, as good as Dwayne Wade was, Travis Diener was the one that helped him be who he, who he was at that point, right? because of the kind of teammate, the way he moved the ball, the pressure he took off of him, you know, those type of things. So we'd had tremendous success with somebody that looked and played like that and, 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 and wasn't as big and didn't fit all the prototypes. But it became pretty clear early on that you want only wanted him, you wanted the family. Mm. And uh, that day that he committed, it, it was, this was straight out of a movie when we called him over to offer him the scholarship. And you've probably heard the story, but there was a guy I was going to hire on my staff named Dave Pendergraft and Dave had been in the NBA for years. And, and I love Dave and he, and he had been in the NBA and he ended up leaving us to go back to the NBA with the Atlanta Hawks before we ever got into things. But Dave, Dave was the ceiling point for me. We're watching a Jordan Hall's highlight tape and I trusted Dave's opinion and I was already there, but Dave pushed me over the top because when you got a local kid like that, you don't, it can't fail. 
right? I knew that. Now you can't, you, that has to go right. There's even more pressure that has to go right. So we call them, they live seven, eight minutes away. They come over, we go out to center court, lights on over the scoreboard. We go over to center court. He comes with his dad. We offer him a scholarship. Like it was a, it was a big time moment. And then what made it even bigger is when they came to commit, they brought everybody. It had to be, it had to be 20 deep of the Hall's family. Grandma, grandpa, aunts, uncles, cousins. I mean, you name it, brothers, sisters, it was there. That those were two incredible moments. The night we offered him, because it was close to midnight. I mean, it had to be 1130 midnight. I don't remember the exact date, but it was in that spring, summertime. And uh, um, then when he committed, those were incredible moments. And he really, he really established the work ethic in there. He really did. Because Verdell established that you could persevere. Verdell established that you didn't have to look like everybody else because he was so thin, right? Mm-hmm. And probably in most situations that he would go at that level, he was going to redshirt or not play very much. And this dude had to be our guy, yeah. right? So he and Tommy Pritchard, they had to be our guys. And, and um, he, he did it. Like he came in. I mean, he really, really did it. Well, Jordan comes in. And then when Victor and Will came in, see, our work ethic was still not where it needed to be. You know, Jordan's first year. The work ethic really didn't kick in until year three. That's when the culture really started to really change is when Victor and Will came in. Because mm-hmm. when Victor and Will came in, they, they were religious about being in that gym. Mm-hmm. Started with Victor and it went right to Will. They were religious. Well, now, Co- now Jordan Hulls didn't stand out as a guy that was in the gym and other guys weren't. You know, we had a couple guys one time that 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 one guy went in to shoot the other guy went into the hot tub they both act like they got a workout in right like that's not <laughs> that's not what it is and uh and finally we had to get it we had to get it stopped because they were taking their girlfriends into this hot tub we built in the locker room well i thought they were in there shooting at night no they're in there with their girlfriends so we gotta we gotta cut that out right <laughs> <You know? laughs> but jordan when victor and will came that just changed things and that's when our culture really took off it um, Winston Morgan, we were recruiting Winston Morgan's son and he was up there one day and they were playing and he came in afterwards and he said, he said, your guy is that little kid from Bloomington. He said, that's going to be your guy. He said, that's going to be your guy. I can see it. I can see it. Like he, so like there people would start to see it. Right. And we weren't any good yet, but they could see that he was going to be a factor and, uh, wonderful to coach him. One of the things you brought those first few years was, how can I put this? Um, insane shootarounds, like crazy energy, intense. I mean, it just seemed like when you had these guys on the court, you were not taking a moment to let off the gas. Um, clearly, I don't think that's something that stayed with us when we got to be number one in the country. But what was it about that that you felt like we needed to do? Establish a work ethic. And it stayed with it more than you, they were a little shorter. You see, what I would start to do as we got better, I would shorten it because Victor had such a routine. I wanted to leave enough time for Victor to do his ball. We started taking cones on the road because Victor wanted to do his ball handling stuff on the road, not just at home, mm-hmm. right? And so like you cater to your players that way. So I would I would cut the shoot around short. Now, Cody Zeller and some of those guys wouldn't agree they were shorter, but they were shorter <laughs> because, because you'd want to give them enough time to shoot. But I think it's all part of establishing the work ethic. And there's no question that I probably overdid it at times. You know, I, I, I was very conscious of not wearing them out, but because there was so, 
there was nobody to carry us early on. That's what I look back at. Like there was nobody that had been through it. Remember, we had 28 points back. Yeah. You know, Kyle Tabor, Brett Finkelmeyer didn't score and Kyle Tabor scored 28 points. That's all we had back. And, and um, I probably underestimated how much they didn't have people that had done it at that level with success and the pressure that that put on them. There was, there was nobody, I say this all the time. Yogi was so good at this. He eventually, I learned a lot about this from coaching Yogi. When Yogi finally turned into the leader that he could be, everybody on the court, they always liked playing with Yogi, but now they felt much safer playing with Yogi. Mm. Leadership is one thing. Okay. Who you feel absolutely confident with and safer with because they're in the game is another thing. And we didn't have anybody like that early on. And Jordan was too young for that. Right. And we were, and where I made mistakes with Jordan is I was trying to push him into that at too young of an age. I know I did. Right. Like I know I pushed him harder than he had to, than, than it had to be. Now, did that help him at the end? Maybe, but I probably pushed him too much early because I was trying to force leadership and force that work ethic. And there weren't enough guys to carry the mantle for those guys when things weren't going well. And so you live and you learn, but I don't, it doesn't change the importance of how important it was to establish, no, this is how we work. This is how we play. We are a work program. And right now I say that all the time in recruiting and I don't ever want to recruit to come up even at Georgia. It was the same way at Indiana. I didn't want anybody coming up if they didn't see us practice and work. Right. And, and uh, that's what I wanted. Right. And it actually drove a couple people away. I mean, it, it really did. I don't have a doubt that uh, the Carlinos coming and watching practice and stuff like that when they were there, I, I don't think they liked it, right? Wow. Hey, so be it. So be it, right? No, I'm not mad. Go somewhere else. But the bottom line is this is how we have to do it. I mean, it's hard to build an edge when, when it's not natural for people to have that edge. But if they're going to be successful in this game, they've got to have it. The NBA wants maturity, they want efficiency, and they want an edge. And, and those three things are really, really hard to get. But I learned early on at Marquette that if you can help people get them, they can have a really good career. And you know what? If they don't make it, they can still have a pretty good career in any part of life. Sure. Because if they are efficient, if they have a level of maturity, and if they have an edge, they're going to be good. They're going to be successful. They're going to want their kids to grow up with that. So I, had no, I have no complaints about how we push like that because it's, it's all part of establishing things. You can't. You can't sing kumbaya. I mean, you just can't. I mean, you gotta, you gotta push them to be great. It's a hard business. So listen, um, you talk a lot about the um, the work ethic. Uh, we talked about vampire bats, the edge, um, your intensity, um, and and you said it, and you're right. We see from the outside, so we don't get to see a little bit of like the softer side. Oh yeah, see, it's there, but. I want to be honest here. We've talked to a lot of your former players and I always ask them the same question and keep in mind, this is coming from a guy who looks like this. Okay. So, so just realize you're talking to two insane people here. I always say to them, when did you realize Tom Crean was a crazy person? And I want to know from you, when did you realize you were just built different because you are, you, you are built different. That not many people, and, and Tom, I believe this with all my heart. And Fred Glass actually said this to us recently on our show. And I know there's maybe not the, you know, there were ups and downs in the Fred relationship, but Fred said, and we believe it, there is no one in the country who could do what you did with Indiana 
and get us to where we were? No one. I believe that because like you said, people have no idea how bad it was. We know a little bit more now because we've talked to plenty of people behind the scenes. There is no one that could have done it. But part of why you were able to do it is because you're built different. So when did you realize you were just built different? Um, well, I think in a way, because I had a few people that would do this for me, but I also had people that didn't have enough interest in me that I knew they weren't doing it for me, that I never wanted one of the players, okay, to leave thinking that I didn't try to get the very best out of that. Like I learned at an early age, as an assistant coach, as an assistant coach, your job is to try to make your coach the coach of the year, every year, right? Like if you do that and you make it about your coach and you make it about what he needs, well, you're going to take care of yourself. You're going to sell yourself. The moment you're selling yourself and not your head coach, it's a problem. Well, the same thing with players. You have a responsibility as a coach to try to help somebody be great every day, whether they see it or not. And as long as you're trying to make them great, all right, now you can sleep at night. Now, there's been many nights that I've called back and apologized or the next morning. I learned from Tom Izzo, never let the sun go down on a problem, right? Like if you got a problem, get it handled the best that you can. And then you learn as a head coach, you're the first to know or the last to know. There's very little in between. But I always went back to, was my heart in this to help them be as good as they could be based on where they were going to have to go in life? Because that's part of the education process. And I didn't always get that, but I knew with the people that gave that to me, what that meant to me. So I wanted to err on the side of that. But I would say I knew my passion was incredible when I was coaching at Alma College in Mount Pleasant High School. Um, I, I, didn't, I didn't compare it to others' passions, but I just knew that I had this drive. But I would say somewhere at Western Kentucky, um, with the responsibilities that I was given at a young age, that if I couldn't do it, I wasn't, there was no excuse for me. Like if, if I couldn't do what Ralph Willard wanted me to do, and I knew he cared about me, but I knew I had to produce, right? Like, so I think doing and, and wanting him to succeed uh, the way I did, and then going in and Tom Izzo being one of my best friends and absolutely wanting him to succeed and being willing to push and above and beyond that's, I think, what those are the moments where it hit me that this is just what it is. And I've got to try to, to, uh, but I think, again, it's like you guys have, have seen it. And maybe you've heard it from others. There's so many things that go on behind the scenes that never became public totally. with kids because I wasn't into that. You know, I wasn't into pontificating about all these good things or, and it, it's, I just wasn't like, I wanted, you know, I, I wanted kids to leave someday and they didn't have to have a camera crew follow them around to help some lady change her tire on the side of the road, right? Like they didn't have to, they didn't have to get an award for giving somebody a free meal somewhere, right? Because they didn't have any money. Like I wanted them to have selflessness in them, but there's no question that I made way, a lot of mistakes early on at Marquette. Cause I was way too, I was way too passionate about being good real quick. Hmm. But at the end of the day, we went to the final four in four years. So like there, yeah. there's a give and take to it all. It, we but, talk about this a lot. I was with, a lot harder on people then. We we talk a lot about this with Coach Knight. That look, there was some bad with Coach Knight also, and and it's been publicized. And we, as you have said, there's so much more good of what he did with the guys who stuck with him. But 
the same drive and passion and single-mindedness that makes all the good stuff, there is some bad that just comes with that. And, and some of it is you can't have one without the other. You know, you have to have this incredible drive and passion. And you know what, that is gonna offend some people. And there's gonna be times where you step over a line perhaps, but it's very hard, you know, to, you, you can't cut out the bad and still expect all the good. And, and that's just life, we're not perfect people. Yeah, and I think it all comes down to where your heart's at. I mean, and, right. and again, uh, it's like a game. You know, e after every game, when I'd sit down and watch that film, it started with me. And and I I, I might do it in front of coaches, but I didn't like doing it in front of coaches because I was going to get, I was going to be angry, right? And like, it was anger at myself. And so I wanted to process that before a lot of times I went through it with the coaches. Mm. And there were times that I would watch it with the coaches right after the game. And there are certainly times that I've said things after games that I wish that I could have back. No, everybody does, right? There's things we say to our kids we wish we could have back. That's where forgiveness comes in. Sure. Great teams, great programs, they forgive each other, right? They forgive each other. They just do. I mean, they just, they do. And when people don't, you know, now you really probably don't have a great program, right? right. But they forgive each other. They, they learn. And Tim Floyd gave me a lot of lessons when I first started at Marquette. He said, he said there are going to be days that you're going to wonder if they like you, care about you, or they hate you. And I said, you're not going to really know until five or 10 years after they leave, if you really reach them or not, then you'll know. Mm -hmm. and, and I always, little things like that always stuck with me. And, um, but I think when your heart is in the place of bringing something out of someone that they don't necessarily see or believe they can bring out or don't want to bring out, and you're going to be in a leadership position, you are responsible to bring that. And, and um, I don't want to feel like I've ever cheated. Now, I know I've made mistakes. And I know there's people that, that no matter where you coach, um, that should have been better for them or it didn't go this way. And you understand that. That's part of it. And they're probably not wrong in all cases. But I didn't walk in there without any intention any day of not every one of them getting better. And I think coaches and players. And I think that's when you can feel that way, even though you're going to have rough days and bad days and mistakes, you're going to have a lot of good days too. And eventually you hope that you really help them later on in their life with that. You talked about the heartbreaking loss to Illinois where you were in it and just couldn't get over the top. But, but before we get to not only one of the greatest moments in IU history, but in college basketball history, there was a big time win at home the season before uh, over Illinois in which um, we all finally saw the light at the, the end of the tunnel uh, we were pretty sure you were in the hallways. I think maybe some free pizza was given out. We definitely know there was this great communion between you and the students. Can you talk about that win and, and did it feel to you internally like it did to us on the outside? Like, you know, we know, we know Cody's coming and that's all great. But even here with these guys, uh, with Vic, with Will, with Jordy, did that really feel like you turned a corner? Oh, absolutely. But it, but it was almost, it, it, well, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. I would say it was, it was monumental. And to me, as corny as this sounds, we did it together mm -hmm. because we went through so many of those tough days with the fans that was totally centered on that fan support. I mean, that's why it was so awesome to coach there. People think, you know, it was rough at the end or the fans booing it. No, those I got all that, but those weren't my issues. Those weren't what made it tough. I mean, 
That's not what made it tough at all. I mean, that's just part of it, right? It's just part of it because I remembered how much people helped us build it up, right? And those were moments like that that were really, really big in that because, again, I said it then, every person that walked into that building mattered. It was not about here's our capacity, here's all these seats filled. No, every person mattered. Because you know what? When I went through the game, I wanted to feel like I mattered. All right. Or why go? Just watch it on TV. Right. When you go to a game, every to me, the value is everybody walks in and they matter. You know, that's how you that's a grassroots program. And and to me, because I, I I've never been in a program where I could take take it for granted. Even at Indiana, couldn't take it for granted. And there's no way they were prepared to lose all those fans when we first got to Indiana. But after going through what we went through that spring and summer, I got it. You know, like I, I said, people, we're going to have to really work at this. I said, we're losing some people now. We got to work at this. And that's what that was all about that night. All right. So let's cut to year four. And Ward mentioned it. One of the greatest moments in the history of college basketball and the greatest moment in, in really in the history of Assembly Hall. Walk us through now that you're this many years removed from it. I mean, we're coming up on, you know, a decade um, or actually we're past. No, no, we're coming up on a decade. Walk us through your perspective now when you look back on that Kentucky game. Um, that that there was no question that was a turning point. I mean, there's no question. And the biggest thing to me is we were not shocked. I was not shocked uh, at all. We prepared all week that way. We felt the NC State win had, 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 had really propelled that. Frankly, the Evansville win was the most nerve-wracking game of the year because it's on the road, and I didn't really want to go there uh, and, and, and have a road game like that. I got it, but but I really didn't want – and it was no offense to Marty or anybody at Evansville. We used to we want to go on the road, right? Right. And we did. We knew we were going to NC State, that whole thing. But that NC State win helped propel that. It gave us some confidence. And uh, I loved our plan. Um, our guys were confident. And the thing that was the hardest is we had that game one where we were getting ready to really turn it. And we started going into hero ball. We started breaking away from the game plan and trying to do our own thing. And that's, that's where my anger came from, right? That's what the face is. That's what it's all about <laughs> because we wanted to win that game big. And we were rolling in a way that was going to allow us to do that. But they're also so good that if you gave them an inch, they were going to take a mile, right? So, like, if you opened up the door at all for Kentucky, they're good enough to take advantage of. And that's exactly what they were doing. And so, um, it, was, it, was a, it was a tale of emotions, you know, leading up to it in the game. Coming, I'll never forget, coming out of that timeout, we just made those threes, and we broke a play right away to try to make a play in maturity, right? Next time we come down, we break a play, trying to make a play. All right, they come down, they score. Momentum changed and momentum is always up for grabs. You learn that and that becomes something that you do not want to give up and you want to get it back as fast as you can. And we couldn't get it back there at the end. You know, we made plays, but we couldn't really get it back to the last shot. There is no doubt that that game, you said it was a turning point for the program. It was a turning point for the fan base. It was, it was just, there aren't enough words to talk about that moment, but it was also a turning point in the history of the Indiana Kentucky series. Clearly. I mean, it was the last time that that game was played. Uh, obviously, you played Kentucky in the NCAA tournament, but that's not a scheduled game. I know you and Coach Cal were, were pretty good friends before that game. 
did that, there became some chirping in the media after that about the schedule and getting it. Did that game change your relationship with him fundamentally? Uh, no, maybe a little bit. See, but I'd heard, the only thing with me is that I'd heard that they were already talking about dropping that game. Oh, before right? that game so, was played? Yeah, yeah. So, like, the only thing that I didn't like, and I told him this, is is let's not blame this on the fans, right? I mean, the, the fans didn't do anything wrong. But, like, no, everything that I said, um, I either told him before or I told him after I said it. Like, there were no tricks in games, right? I wasn't doing magic tricks with what I was saying to uh, – because there, there was – I just didn't want to see us be blamed for not having the game. And um, – but but in defense of him, even with all that going on, there were other times um, we, we easily – we were first offered that opportunity that Ohio State got in that CBS series. Mm -hmm. We were legitimately offered that. And, and it would have been us over Ohio State. And uh, I was led to believe that that the um, the Crossroads Classic, the people didn't want to change. They didn't want to change the date because we we're going to have to change the date. It wasn't about getting out of the Crossroads Classic. It was about changing the date so that we could do it. And I was led to believe, well, no, we can't do it. But so, again, things behind the scenes. Um, too many people got involved in that with the games. Um, they really did. And, and then he dug in and and... I dug in a little bit, but, but we wanted to play it. We had different options. Um, it, it's too bad that that happened. It really is. Uh, but you know what? At the end of the day, it's part of the pageantry of college basketball. There, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be drama. There's going to be things to talk about. True. And it didn't have to get to that. It, it, it really did. And I'm not blaming him. He dug in. Too many people, even on our end, uh, were too vocal, and they really didn't need to be in it. They just yeah, needed look, to let it ride. I was public about this before. I really thought, and, and we had Fred on the show and he was great on the show, but I didn't like how Fred handled that. I didn't like how he handled it publicly. I didn't like, I didn't like any of it because it, the goal is to play the game. The goal is to play the game. And it didn't seem like we were doing anything publicly that was working towards that goal. It felt like we were just playing, I'm gonna get one up in the media and look better in the media. And that was more important than scheduling the game. And the game was important. It's important to a lot yeah. of people. Well, I think, yeah, you, you hit on things that were, that were there. It, when, you, um, when, you, when you have a friendship or relationship and things get said in the media, okay, now they're not surprised if you make sure each other knows. But when you don't have a relationship and you say things, now the risk is really, really high that there's going to be any good feeling from that. Right. All right. Really, really high. Like a lot of things got to go right. And my relationship with him was not enough to overcome that. Right. And, and, and frankly, I got his point. Yeah. Okay. Sure. I got his point. I wasn't trying to embarrass it. I would say what I was saying to him and, and hopefully that it would, that it would come alive, but um, it just didn't, it just yeah. didn't, unfortunately. But yeah, I may now, I may now because yeah. uh, Mike has had a relationship with John for a lot of years and because of Larry Brown. And so, and maybe it will, you know, maybe it will, but, but uh, it went away. It didn't have to stay away. And it's unfortunate that it did. And um, it just, it just didn't have to go that way. It, it if it did. does stay away though, we're always going to have that moment. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And look yeah. at the game, <laughs> look at the game in Atlanta. I mean, look at the game in Atlanta. I mean, that was an offensive Firefest, you know, that game we played in the Sweet 16. Yeah. Although yeah. I got to tell you what also is great, Tom, and not to go too far ahead, 
but the fact that we played them in the second round. Oh yeah. In your, I mean, my God, was that great. By the way, I will say, I broke my hand during that game. Because really? as, yes, as I'm sure you will remember, we've got the game pretty much in hand and Thomas Bryant gets a rebound and decides to go coast to coast. Yeah. Offensive foul. And all we had to do was just stop and hand the ball to one of our guards, give it to Yogi, like we're gonna be fine. I turned around, I punched my couch so hard that I went through the cushion to the frame and broke my hand. That's not good. <laughs> that is not, not good. good. Both, both you and Thomas weren't real mature in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it, it was a, a, an incredible watershed moment, as they say, because the rest of the, you know, you beat number two, Ohio State. You beat that uh, Michigan State schools ranked like number five at that point. It was it was such a fun breakout season for the program. We were all just on cloud nine and nobody played Kentucky tougher in the tournament than you guys. And of course they went on to win the whole thing. So great. Indiana's back. And now off season going into the next season, you're the number one team in the country. Obviously that's thrilling. We're all delighted to be there, but I, is there a, a mixture of emotions on the inside of like, well, now, now this pressure, which we really haven't felt for the first four years to be great is suddenly thrust upon us. How did, how did you approach that season and try to prepare the team for the pressures of being at this huge program now with a target on your back every year? Well, I think the biggest thing was that to me, your most energy comes from your improvement, right? And distractions come, drama comes, all these different things come. But if you're improving, your energy is going to stay high, right? And so the whole thing became we had to have a great offseason. Uh, we had to have a great preseason. We stayed really focused. Uh, and, and somewhere along the way, you cannot lose us against the world, right? Now, you mm -hmm. may not be able to sell the underdog the way it is, but you can't lose that because those kids weren't recruited to come in there and feel like they were entitled, right? So they, right. they weren't, right? And Zeller epitomized that. He's not an entitled person at all. He's a very competent person, but he was never. So you, there was no entitlement in us and we couldn't allow it to kick in. And that's what I wanted to fight every day. The fear of entitlement coming in where we think this is owed to us. And, and so that's where you have to be hard. You have to be demanding. Um, there were certain games that didn't go well for us. Some the physicality in the Butler game uh, was a big thing. The night at Illinois, we had some things going on behind the scenes that that uh, distraction wise, you know, with, with personal things kids were dealing with at home that were really rough. And, and we played that way. You know, we played that way. There were always certain things. Minnesota, they were just hungrier than us that night. Um, but there were certain things that played into it, but there were so many great wins. And I think that the turning point obviously to get it back when, when we rebounded from losing that Ohio state game at home to go to Michigan, oh. that was a big thing. And, and oh. that's when our team was extremely locked in. Um, and, and that's, that's what it was. And, and the hardest thing going into the, to the tournament was making sure we had enough energy. You know, we beat James Madison. We did not play very well against, against temple, but we won the game, but Jordan got hurt and that really hurt us. And we were already, when you get a matchup like Syracuse, we're not that big. They're, 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 they're built on having bigger guards. And we had some small guards, right? We had Yogi. We had Jordan. Well, Jordan, Jordan didn't practice full the entire week. 
he took a cortisone shot before the game. I mean, he, he, um, it was tough, man. I mean, that was tough because you, you want to play in that game. You know, you're going to be a little tired. You might be a little banged up, but we were a lot safer when Jordan was on that floor playing well. I mean, his threes energized people and there's no way he felt as comfortable because he's not healthy and we didn't shoot the ball well. And frankly, inside of that game, I had a coach that coached in that league make a really good point. He said, when the referees decide that Syracuse is not fouling in that zone, you're in trouble. Because there were numerous times in the middle of that zone uh, that we go to the rim and we didn't get rewarded with the foul call, but we did not shoot well enough. You know, we did not shoot the ball well enough from the outside. Uh, We didn't get to the foul line enough. We didn't do a good enough job on Michael Carter Williams, but there were so many games inside of that year where it could have gone the other way. And because these guys were bonded, tough, had will, you know, they found a way to win the game, right? Because there was such an unselfishness about them. Mm. And and, um, when your best players are great passers and unselfish and got great personalities, uh, you're going to have some issues along the way, but you're going to be able to recover from them. And that's exactly what happened for us that year. Where does that Michigan win and winning the outright Big Ten championship rank in your time at Indiana? Well, you know what is as high as any because of the fact of the way that we won it. Yeah, we were down as everybody remembers. We're down with 57 seconds to go. I say this all the time because it's, it's, it's a sign of the preparation of the team and the way they carried it out. Um, because we'd had a rough we'd had a we'd had a rough week. I did not like our attitude. Uh, I did not like our response to the Ohio State game. I did not like that at all. And uh, we needed to get back to square one. In all honesty, I don't know if the kids have ever come on here and talked about this, but that Thursday morning after a Wednesday off, we called practice for 5.30 or 5.45 in the morning. And the first thing they did for 45 minutes, I think it was was either Thursday or Friday morning. Maybe it was Friday morning. Maybe it was Friday morning. But first thing they did is clean the locker room because I'd gone in the night before and just tore it up. I didn't tear up like throw... I took all the junk, all the trash, all the stuff that was laying around that was in the wrong place, okay? The, the stuff that wasn't put away and just threw it all in the middle of the room. And they had about 45 minutes and the whole message was, I mean, I, I, did, it with a, I did it with my son and a manager. I just took it all in there that late that night. I said, this is a joke. Cause I said, this is, I walked in there for something. I said, this is where we're at. We're not locked in. And, and I mean, that, that locker room is beautiful. Right. Yeah. And, and there's going to be things laying out once in a while, but not at this level, not like this. And so I said, we got to get our own house in order before we go up there. And we practiced that morning and we practiced a little bit in the afternoon. We had a walkthrough on Saturday morning. Uh, I didn't even go to that walkthrough in the morning on that Saturday. I went and watched Jaquan Lau play. I wanted some distance from them and them some distance from us. And we got on the plane and we went and practiced that night at Michigan. And all we did is really outside of shooting work on late game situations. Mm. And those guys went into that game. We had three timeouts left at the end of that with one minute to go. I never used one timeout because of the way those guys executed at the end. And it helped that Michigan missed the free throws and didn't have anybody on the free throw line, you know, to rebound the missed free throws, but it worked out. And so like, that's why those guys showing that they could lock in, recover, from a really tough loss, get their heads back on straight, go up in there into a tough environment. Like we could see the trophy in the corner of the end zone 
all right, with the, with the people that had a box, and there's no question the box had the hats in them, right? We could <laughs> see that, right? Like we could literally see that. They were in the opposite tunnel. And um, I pointed that out. I do think the kids got a second box of hats that day. I think they ended up with two boxes of hats. <laughs> um, I, look, you've talked a little bit throughout about some of the mistakes that when you look back, you know, you wish you had it back or you, you wish something that you said may, you know, you, you could take that back, especially sure. God knows with my kids, I wish I had many things back. Do you regret what happened at the end of that Michigan game with the confrontation that happened? Oh yeah. Yeah. Can you talk definitely. about that a little bit? Sure. No, no question. And, and really what I did is I apologized before we ever got to the plane, but, mm. but, um, that wasn't, that was a moment that I let my guard down based on other things that had happened. And it really wasn't what the mistake I made was saying anything about Indiana. That was dumb. I mean, that was absolutely dumb for me to do that. Now there are some other things that had aggravated me in that situation. And I let them out and I culminated it with saying that about Indiana. I mean, about, about what had happened in Indiana. And I regretted that big time. I called him before I ever left, um, or before I ever got on the plane. It, it it took off. It gave something for people to really to really chomp on. Uh, Michigan ran with it. Uh, you know, John and Dave tried to Dave Brand. They tried to get me suspended. Mm. Um, we got fined. You know, th th I thought they overdid it, but I but I but again, that that's do what you want. I felt bad. I felt bad about that. Uh, I didn't feel bad about being angry and sure. but I felt bad about my response and how I responded. And not only did he not need it, but I didn't need to do that to myself. Right. And, and especially that was, in that moment, right. Yeah, Which could have been just didn't, triumphant. Yeah. I made a mistake. Yeah. I made a mistake and, and I should have known better. And, um, but I've, I've done that different times in my career. Hopefully I don't ever do it again. You know, you say something I haven't to a coach. I mean, it's just, you're in combat Honestly, mode. I look, struggle after games because I'm in full combat mode. And that's why after games have always been really hard for me. And I need, I needed, uh, I need, I need to settle in. I need somebody to help me with that. And in that moment, it was just the heat of the moment and I screwed it up. Listen, Tom, you've given us two hours. We could do another two and we don't want to do that to you. We'd love to have you back on for a second part to talk about, you got another big 10 championship, another sweet 16, great players, NBA players, would you be willing to come back on at sure, some yeah. point? This is fun. You guys are great. This is fun. I didn't right. realize it was that long. Before so. we go, I do want to say this. Look, Tom, you coming on to this show and doing this for us is just, I can't tell you how appreciated it is. Because, look, we've had fun with some of the moments that you had at Indiana over the time. We've been critical. Uh, God knows you know fans were critical of you at times at Indiana. Sure. But you coming here and having the humility to talk about the good and the bad uh, and also, Ward and I were talking about this before, absence makes the heart grow fonder. We know what losing is. Your time at Indiana, you gave us success that we weren't sure we would ever get back. And honestly, we're hopeful we'll get it back, but who knows, because it's hard to win games. You gave us some memories that we talk about, Tom, every day, every day. I believe they you. are part of our lives. I make my kids watch the Kentucky game, the Michigan game on the road, the second round Kentucky game, the Illinois game. You gave us so much as fans. Well, and that, I, and, and that was on the court. 
And I want to say something I've talked about on this show repeatedly, and Eric knows very well, is my wife and I met in Bloomington when we were back visiting my dad. We went down there with our daughter. We were seeing all the happy places. We headed over to Assembly Hall. It was a Sunday afternoon. Nothing was going on. It was the summertime. Cook Hall was locked up, but Coach Tom Crean came jogging up. I was obviously, oh, uh, hey, uh, hey, coach, take the ear, earphones out. And I'm like, hey, it's just so great to meet you. Could you possibly, could we get a picture? You were so gracious. You were so kind. You were so welcoming. And then you had Coach Buckley open up Cook Hall so we could walk in and see the Hall of Fame. And, and we were just blown away by your hospitality, your generosity. And that is something that stuck with us every day since. And it just, it spoke to what kind of person you really are. You know, and you were living in California at the time, right? Yes. I remember that. I, I remember about the dad. As soon as you said the part about the dad, because you were visiting your dad. You were visiting yeah. your dad, right? Absolutely. That's correct. Is that what it was? Yep. You're yeah, right. I remember that. It was a Sunday afternoon. Was What year was that? Ooh, that would have been 16? like 20, uh, 15 or 16. Yeah. 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 Wow. That, that was, yeah, I, I definitely, I remember that. I, honest to God, because I remember as soon as you said dad and I, in the, in the California, I didn't remember it by look, but I remember as soon as you said that I registered that. Yeah. Well, he didn't have a seventies porn stash when he went. Met <laughs> yeah. I didn't, I could, I can't say, Hey, I remember the face. <laughs> but, uh, That's for the best. I do remember that. I do remember the moment because of the, uh, because of visiting the dad. I mean, it's early on, I'll tell you one of the, the great things is people were so surprised when I first got there, like that they could go in, like that was a destination. I'll never forget a family came over from Italy and the dad brought his son, okay? They were traveling through the United States. He wanted his son to see Assembly Hall. That was my first or second year. It was an afternoon out in the big parking lot. They didn't know they were gonna get in, right? I didn't know I was gonna run into him, obviously. And, and they were from Italy. They didn't have the whole family with them. The other ones were at the hotel, but he wanted his son to see it. We took him in like, those are the moments, like what you're talking about. And I think, I appreciate this because I think you guys outside of the players and, and I hope everybody will, will, will believe this because this is what was such a driving force. And we've really covered a lot of it today outside of the relationships with the players and the staff that we had the greatest things we're seeing the living, breathing passion that people have for that program. And with that being said, yes, there's going to be some rough days. Those rough days help prepare me for a lot of things, but I'd already had rough days that helped me prepare. There's nothing that I could ever go through in coaching that would rival those first three months and three years. I mean, nothing, right? But the passion of the fans, and you brought back good memories for me. I haven't thought about that Illinois game, you know, going up in the crowd forever, right? Because there was just, we just wanted to celebrate with people that had been a part of all those tough days because that's what made it. Indiana is a grassroots program and it's one of the wealthiest, most successful programs in the history of college sports and basketball. And it's not just because of the corporate dollars and the donations. Obviously that helps in a big way. It's not just because we could fly privately and do this. It's because fans grew up on that. They wanted their families to grow up on that. And it meant something to them. And I appreciate the way you guys feel about it because I loved it there. Well, we appreciated the way you felt about it. We knew how much you cared about Indiana. And, you know, when we do part two, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about, about the end. But I 
we could tell how much it hurt you that it ended. And, um, you know, I, I just want to thank you personally for what Appreciate you gave it. us in your nine years there, for how you fought back from the depths of college basketball that no one could imagine to bring us the joy and moments and players. These players, as you know, like you talked about Kent Benson as a kid. Well, Cody Zeller's our Kent Benson. Yogi sure. Farrell is our Scott May and Quinn Buckner. You know, you gave Victor Oladipo, you know, that that's our Calbert Cheney. Like you gave us people, great people that represent Indiana University the way we want it represented. And that is forever. So, you know, wins are great, but these memories with the players last forever. So thank you, You're Tom. Right. And we You're look welcome. forward to part two. We'll do it. I appreciate it being with you guys and have a great weekend. And also you too, thank coach. your son for us for being a fan so that we could get you on. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. He uh but he's the one uh he's the one when I first got to know the guys at Barstool. Yeah. He said, Dad, because because um uh, my brother-in-law and Dan Dockich were trying to hook that up right after I left Indiana. He said, Dad, they kill you. See, they kill you. And I said, Well, you know what? Maybe they won't kill me anymore. Let's go meet them. Right. And go. it's like became friends. It was unbelievable. So, like, no, he's he, he is as passionate and as caring, and, and he gave up baseball after one year here uh, to go into coaching, and he's getting ready to be a senior, and it's like having a 30, 32-year-old on the staff, but he is as passionate as can be, so he thinks you guys do a great job, so that's great for me. All right. Well, thanks again. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Coach. Absolutely. All right. We'll talk again soon. That was our guest. That was our guest. Well, that was incredible. <laughs> Yeah, man, I, it's still surreal to me that that we that he agreed to do it, and yeah. that, and look, I I mean, we've been critical of him in the past. He's been the butt of jokes for many IU fans, but the guy showed some real stones to willing to come on here. He didn't shy away from any question. He gave us some incredible behind the scenes stories. What well, and and to just so freely admit his regrets and mistakes. You know what, this, this was not somebody trying to come in and, and justify or make excuses or this rewrite was, history. Yeah. It was just like, man, this is this. Uh, oh yeah. I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't done that. And you know, I, that's something I certainly can relate to. I think we all can. And for me in particular, like heat of the moment stuff, that you're just like, oh, I need to like back away and take a breath and, and that kind of thing. It's just all so human and relatable. Yeah, and I'm a walking regret. I mean, look at <laughs> Yeah, well, look, yes. I yes. I get it. Um, look, I, I, I you said it to him, and it's just so true. The humanity that you get from doing these things, even little things were like, Look, I've, we've all heard his like coaching philosophy and, and kind of his strategy on how he motivates. And, and, and I like hearing all that. And, and it's, um, it's clearly who he is. It's, it's part of him. But something like so small, like after I would play a Friday night game, I had to go back to the restaurant and work. Mm -hmm. I had to go bake the cinnamon rolls. And you mm -hmm. could tell like there was a pride in how he baked cinnamon rolls. And, and that to me is so relatable because like there are jobs that I had when I was a kid that I think back on, like I take pride in that I did that then. Like I'm proud that I did that. I worked a construction crew for one summer for like four weeks. 
And I still have pride that I did that. It's just something like that is so relatable to me and also does give you um, just a greater sense of where he's coming from, you know, and, and the fact that he talked about being shy and not confident and that, you know, he really took in from the people who were trying to help him and there were others that weren't and he wanted to prove something there being a half credit shy of graduating with his class and that's all that mattered to him like dealing with that failure and he called it embarrassing and and dealing with that illness whatever it was as as a freshman you know you just these are the formative years i think we all look back to those those student years high school and stuff as like wow that 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 so much made me who I am and to, to get that level of detail and understanding it does. It's like Tom green, Tom green, the human being, the, 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 the person, the individual that sorry, that there's just really not another, you know, maybe there was a couple in-depth pieces one read over the years to get a, a better understanding behind the curtain. But that's why I do feel so fortunate. We stumbled onto this, this format in the day and age of podcasts where we can go this deep uh, and and it just makes it honestly me look back at that era even we had to take a little break here by the when after we wrapped with him and then getting back on to do this outro and I was with my in-laws and my wife and just being like I'm I'm so uh, much more um rose-colored glasses come back on for all those great I just said there was so many more great memories the end obviously stunk but like we had some real good times with Tom Crean and his teams and to to be able to have this conversation and just spend time talking with him about that stuff, including the really rough times at the beginning, which made the times of success that much sweeter that like, yeah, that's, you want to remember that stuff fondly rather than have the very end taint it all. And Ward winning at Indiana is hard. And you know how we know that? because we've not seen it much. It's like, I, you know, look, I, we have been critical of Tom Crane. We have, we've, we've made him the butt of jokes because we think it's funny. And we've had fun with his image and the funny faces that he makes. And like, we've had fun with it. And I don't want to like pretend like all of a sudden like that all goes away. Like we right, do. But, but that's what we do with ourselves and everybody else. That's true. But I, I want to go back like, <laughs> Winning is really hard. We haven't sniffed the the top third of the Big Ten since he left. And he won three, I'm sorry, two Big Ten championships and took us to the Sweet 16 three times. We haven't sniffed anything like that. We haven't been to the tournament since he left. Right. We have not played in the NCAA tournament since Tom Crean was our coach. Yeah. And, and look, let's be honest, the, the Samson years were, were horrific because of what, what was going on behind the scenes and hearing him illuminate some of that stuff, it's just fascinating. It is, I, mean, I do find I, it remarkable how he wanted to continue the friendship with Kelvin. Like, you know, that but he was able to kind of separate it uh, and wanted to. Um, I thought that was fascinating. But like the Mike Davis years, except for one year, they were awful. I mean, the Mike Davis years were awful on the court you know, except for the magical run of 2002. So we just, 
you with time comes perspective. And Tom Crean, while there were downsides and it didn't end well, he gave us Big Ten championships and Sweet 16s and number one seed. And you're right. There were moments that we, you know, that that are just so happy to think about. I'd rather think about those right now. And I mean, along with wins and losses, just style of play. And I know that the defense aggravated people, uh, present company included, um, during his span, but it was so fun to watch those offenses play. And I turnovers, sure, that's kind of with the territory of the style. It was just the way those teams would score and light it up from the outside and the electricity of some of those players. Um, it w- there was just a lot more good than bad. And I think it's like anything, it's, you know, this relationship um, that, that, as you said, absence makes the, uh, the heart grow fonder. And I hope that we are entering a new era in which winning and joy and fun will return to Assembly Hall. But, but quite frankly, you know, from, let's say, 2011 to 2016, that's the best we've had it since the early 90s. That's a great point. And look, I, I also don't want to like whitewash here. The end wasn't good and things weren't great. So it ended and it probably needed to end. I don't want like people to think we're like walking back from that. Right. But, and I'm sure, to, and look, we're going to do a part two. And I'm really curious if he looks back on it and just thinks, you know what, it had run its course. You know, I, I'm curious because he does seem to be a guy that has some perspective now and is willing and has some humility about things that that I think I didn't give him credit for before having this conversation, but um, but it doesn't take away from the great moments that that again I mean we'll have forever I mean I will have forever throwing Mandy across the room onto a bed in a hotel room in Connecticut with the watch shop I mean we'll have that for the rest I, of my life I will never forget losing my mind at the parlor on Melrose with 150 other IU hysterics uh, here in Southern California. And on my way out to running up and down the street, screaming, slapping Eric Gordon a high five. You know, like- That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I will always have being in my office on the 10th floor of uh, the Daltz building, as it was called in, in Burbank, watching the stream of Cody Zeller deciding who he was going to pick. And when he picked Indiana, I lost my mind to the point where the floor emergency warden came into my office with a vest on, like, <laughs> like a disaster had hit, going, what happened? What's wrong? Are you okay? I let, Let's make no mistake about it. Cody Zeller came to Indiana because of what Tom Crean was building at Indiana. And that's it. And that that love of Indiana, that understanding of what Indiana is and how inspiring is it that a kid uh, struggling to graduate with his own class in high school, baking cinnamon buns uh, to make ends meet, uh, uh, ended up coaching two programs that that were so important to him in his formative years. When he said that, he's like Marquette, you know, with Al McGuire and the 76 team, like that was kind of it. And then he's like, I got to coach at those schools for 18 years, like 18 years. That is that is like clearly this was a man who was 
was coming up with zero advantages or inside or nepotism, like none of that working for him. And through hard work and passion, he got to coach at his two uh, uh, beloved programs. And Michigan State obviously was important too. And he got to be there and help build that monster with Izzo. That's just, no matter what your passion or your love is, to hear that and be like, wow, you know, if, if, you know, a younger listener is tuning in and is like, man, um, if I put in the work, I can make, I can make my dreams come true because Tom Crean did, you know, with, with, with no leg up in the world, um, he ended up on the Hoosier Hysterics podcast. That's really something. <laughs> I look, you can, there's a lot of people out there who are very critical of Tom Crean as we have been, but you cannot deny his work ethic. You cannot deny his passion. You cannot deny his commitment and dedication to his craft. You, you can argue all day about strategy and, you know, his effectiveness on certain things, but you're right. I mean, he grew up with no advantage and busted his ass to get to where he is and continues to bust his ass. And I I do think, I think we've all, we've all seen the fan base, uh, the the collective memories on those good times do come more to the forefront over the last four years. And that, that a lot more fans appreciate what he did now than they did at the time uh, when he left. You know, it's funny, like I think about the four years of Archie and I think about the first four years of Tom. I mean, there were moments in those first four years of Tom that I still remember very fondly. The first three years, believe it or not. I really oh, don't. sure. Not yeah. just the, some of the losses. I mean, just the way they played, you know, I mean, being with you guys and coming up with nicknames for Nick Williams, Oatmeal from Annie, you know, <laughs> yeah. like they're just so much that I remember fondly. And I think about Archie's four years and there is so little that I remember truly fondly. Yes, we beat Michigan State. Yes, we um, beat Marquette that one game, you know, where Evan Fitzner hit the shot. But it does not engender the same kind of goodwill that these moments do, probably because there was no end game for them. Whereas with Tom, at least we did win Big Ten championships. At least we did become a national power for a short time. Um, so... But I, again, just go back to, he didn't have to come on and talk about this. He texted us, this is the first time he has done anything like this since leaving Indiana. You know, I mean, he did some interviews right away when he was let go, but he has not done a long form walk down memory lane and he doesn't have to. It's not going to help him recruit Georgia players. It's not going to help him get a contract extension. It's not going to set him up well for the next job. The only reason to do it is because he still has, and he said it over and over again, Ward, he has a respect for the fans. He has a respect for the former players. But he said every person who came to those games mattered. It's not about capacity numbers or the number of people that sold out. Every individual mattered. And I believe him 100% that he believes that. And and I, I have such great admiration for that and, and for his willingness to connect to the fans through us in a way is uh, I'm just so filled with gratitude for it. Well, and 
we we got to have a, a wonderful conversation with Mike Davis as well. And then even with Coach Knight coming to the event at the Bird and then ultimately coming back to Assembly Hall, you, this gratitude we have uh, for what they did, the, the blood, sweat and tears they put in and for us, you know, sticking by them. Uh, in the bad and celebrating the good to, to want to eventually put the, the last chapter off to the side and be able to just think about the good times again. I think that's something very mutual. We've discovered that we get to talk about all these good times or these hard times that ultimately we did go through together. And now we're on the other side of it and we don't want it when I'm, I'm sure when all of them think about IU, they don't want to just think about the bad ending, like oh, all those wonderful people inside the program and supporting the program that that took up so much more of the experience than than the bad. And we're all adults here and can say objectively what went wrong, but to not let it diminish the good times is what I'm so happy we're able to do here. And here's the other thing that you learn when you get a little bit older. It almost always ends bad. Right? Right? Okay. Like yeah. almost everything almost always ends bad. <laughs> yeah. Like that, it's just, that's life, right? Like you, you, even the greats, like it just, there's a few exceptions to the rule, but they are the exceptions to the rule. And it does not wipe out the good. And as a fan, I know I'm guilty of this. I get so caught up in the bad and get mm -hmm. so... Yes, you do. <laughs> yeah, I get so overcome by it because I hate the feeling so much that it taints the good and it shouldn't. And, and as time goes on, you're able to focus more on, on the good. And I hope that that's what happens with our podcast. And... You know, I mean, Tom Crean was hired, what, like 14 years ago now? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's crazy that it's been 14 years. And we spent a decade with him, basically, nine seasons. And, you know, that was an important decade in my life. He was hired, like, right after my son was born. You know, and, or wait. Well, Julian was born in September of 2007. No, he came on in April of 2007, right? So he was born right, that's right. Julian was born right after. Man, I, I'm surprised Julian's name isn't Tom. <laughs> well, dude, that was an argument. <laughs> no, it was. Now that I remember it, I wanted his middle name to be Cream. <laughs> and, and Mandy wouldn't let me. Mandy would not let me. She's like, no way. No way. You, you know how because Annie, my wife, didn't get to hear our episode with Archie in which he was great. And, and I really like felt like, oh, there's the Archie you hear about behind the scenes. But because he was never able to, it's just not who he is, put that out publicly besides our interview, so far as I know, and Annie never listens to our show. So she didn't hear that. She never developed any affection for Archie. But after we, we wrapped this interview and I went upstairs to hang out with them, 
She's like, how to go with Tom Crean? And she was so happy to talk about Tom Crean and think about Tom Crean. And obviously our interaction with him in Bloomington was a big part of that. But, you know, also for all those happy memories around the games and how how happy I would be because of what the program was doing. Like you could you could just see the joy in Annie's face when she wanted to talk to me about talking with Tom Crean. And that's 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 really cool. It is cool. Um, I want to say this about uh, part two, for those of you who are upset at us that we didn't go over all the negative stuff. Look, I, the, the one big thing I do want to talk to him about in part two is he talks so much about how Indiana is a grassroots program and it's right. rural road to rural road, you know, county to county. And we, of course, agree with that. I am interested in his perspective on the critique of him that at the end, he lost that. Right. That, that clearly he had it for the first, let's call it five, six years, and then it went away. And I wonder if he, looking back on it, feels that that is one of those things that he mentioned where he got away from what is important in recruiting. I mean, he talked about that. There have been times that every, that when he has done that and gotten away from what he knows is right, he's gotten in trouble and yeah. made mistakes. And I'm wondering if he looks at his last few years at Indiana as that, but then it, the hard thing is, and why this stuff is complicated, is he brings up a great point with Victor and Will, that he could have gotten two in-state kids that year from Indiana that more people in the fan base probably would have known. And when he got Sheehy and Victor Oladipo, no one was jumping up and down celebrating those commitments. But right. he knew that those were the guys he needed to build the program the right way. So it is complicated. It's not just, you got to get Indiana kids. And by the way, did getting Victor and Will that year hurt him years later? Like, it might have. Tune in to part two to find right. out. <laughs> I just, I, I have such tremendous respect that he came on and didn't tell us that he wouldn't talk about anything. Mm -hmm. Every question that we asked, he answered and he was thoughtful about, I, I felt. And I just, I, it, it does change my perspective on him. Like I know that, well, I do that all the time on these guys, but it's true. Well, and I echo the respect um, that you mentioned for him. To me, there's also just a, a, a greater affection too. And I think that that happens anytime you actually get to have a conversation with somebody because our interaction with him outside assembly hall was, was wonderful, but you know, it was five minutes and, and you extrapolate on that and you're like, Oh, you know, he was so great to us. He's my guy. Yeah. Um, but then uh, to take two hours and, and to just thoroughly enjoy the conversation, at, you know, as, as just obviously the subject is fascinating to us and something we're very passionate about, but just like, yeah, I mean, I get why so many people throughout this guy's life have said yes to him. Uh, I will help you. I will be a part of your program. You know, I will hire you. Whatever it is, is like a very engaging guy who's, you know, totally locked in to that, to, to, to two assholes, one of them now rocking a red beard that he like, you know, he was so present and engaged in that conversation that I'm just like, I, I do. I, I, I like him more now because I feel we know him better. Uh, part two, we got to get into the tanning. We got to get into sure. the green juice. We got to get into the pants. Green juice, man. I, there was a couple of well, times I'm like- He fainted the morning that he was like offered the job. 
Yeah, yeah, maybe the green juice was a secret formula to prevent fainting moving I forward. I think it was. Well, and you know, we've asked other players, uh, his players, about it. Nobody knows. So um, it was hard for me a couple times where I'm like, when are you going to ask about the green juice? So, so, but it just didn't seem quite right yet. But we'll, we'll get, we'll get part to two. It part two. Yeah. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Hoosier Hysterics for the hysterics. No E, no I, but the sometimes. Why? I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as we did, both people that are still fans of Tom Crean. And I hope those of you that do not consider yourself a fan of Tom Crean gave this a shot and hopefully walked away with a slightly different perspective or at least a greater appreciation and understanding for what he was going through during that time. I sure as hell did. It makes me hope there's a moment, whether, you know, he's coaching a team or just, I just hope there's a moment where he's back in assembly hall with a crowd that can cheer for him and 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 17,000 people give him the thank you that you there's never you know unless you're retiring and walking off a court there's never a time that a program can give you the proper standing ovation you deserve so i i hope one way or another we all get to witness and hopefully participate in in that ovation he deserves i'm going to throw something out there hit me that game was played in 2011, right? No, 2012. No, 2011. It was December 2011. This year's the 10-year anniversary. They should commemorate it somehow. They should invite back that team to be there for it, and they should invite him back. I, I hope there's a, a game on the schedule. Maybe there's a hysterics event scheduled for it, at least, at, you know, where, where you know, obviously he's coaching a, a power five school. So he's going to be real busy in, in December too. But man, if what we if could we make that event, the 10 year anniversary event of the watch shot. Yes. Done. I'm in. I mean, we got to execute on that now. We got to call some people, but <laughs> we are talking about doing a Hoosier Hysterics event in December. That would be the 10-year anniversary. I think we try to do this. I think we make the phone calls to the, the team, the people that we know on that team. It's going to be hard for the NBA guys. What if it's just us and Elston? That ends up being the whole <laughs> thing. Because <laughs> you know Tipton Tornado will be there. He'll be there. He'll, He'll be clear there. the golf schedule to show up, but I, I think that would be tremendous. Let's try to pull it off. Let's do our best um, because that that was, you said it great, uh, the greatest moment in Assembly Hall history. Yeah. All right, this was fun. We'll do it again next week. From the halls of Assembly, you'll hear a scream and shout. I love of Indiana, he's manic and devout. Everything I do, we discuss in unique manner. We won't be satisfied until we hang another banner. Us two goofy guys go by names of Ward and Eric. And as you probably know by now, we're Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics.